As this is the first joint venture between our two countries, I'm having it patched directly to the White House and Buckingham Palace. Well, I'm sure Her Majesty will be fascinated. We have audiovisual. Ah, at last. My God, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Do you expect me to talk? exciting edition of Do You Expect Us To Talk? My name is Becca Andrews, and with me as always are fellow 007 nerds Dave and Chris. Say hi guys, how are you doing? Hi guys. <laughs> There's an echo in here. <laughs> I, I didn't say hi guys, I didn't tune in, I didn't say the right thing. Anyway, how are you doing, you alright? Ah, not too bad, not too bad. Yeah, we're recording uh, we're this just... over Christmas, it's, uh, it's alright, we're, we're at a break now, so you know, Chris is doing nothing apparently, isn't that right Chris? <laughs> <laughs> He's working hard. Or hardly yeah, working yeah. I've I've I've, I've, I've edited all the other podcasts and I'm just like, ah, shall I release it? Nah. <laughs> we're saving it all up. Gonna make him sweat. <laughs> anyway, this time we're blasting off into outer space as we discuss Moonraker. Well, not really in space. Probably the end bit of the movie happens in space, but pff, we'll forget that later on. We'll forget it later. On. <laughs> it's James Bond in space. <laughs> that should that, that should have been in the trailer. That should be space. <laughs> Which is funny because in the original book, had nothing to do with space at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> it was it was like a submarine or a rocket or something. That was a rocket. Yeah, London, I think. Yeah, the film, and the book are two very different beasts. The book's brilliant, actually. But we'll come back to that. Who's anyway. in Moonraker, etc.? Because we haven't done that bit yet. <laughs> anyway, as if you didn't know, the movie stars Roger Moore, Michael Lonsdale, Lois Charles, Corinne Cleary, Blanche Volek, Richard Keel. Written by Christopher Wood, with a score by John Barry, and directed by Lewis Gilbert. So, what do we reckon to Moonraker? Um, Dave, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll happily go first. Seeing as you've seen it like the most times now. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we've um, postponed recording two or three times. And then we did try to record, and it was all too late, and none of us were really doing particularly well. So we can't... We're a bit tired and poorly. Yeah, yeah there is that. Uh, uh, Becca's not been too well. Um, so anyway, Dave, tell us where we are in terms of production, finance, and things like that. Production, finance, and everything like that. Okay. And stuff. And shiz. The incredible thing about this film, I forgot to mention when we... I don't think I mentioned finances when we covered um, The Spy Love Me recently. But uh, you may recall that The Man with the Golden Gun, going back a couple of films, only took $97 million worldwide. And only about 20 of that in the United States. There was a series a little bit in trouble. And then during The Spy Love Me podcast, we talked about... How the um, the series you know, had a had a lot to deal with in the build up to that film. Uh, the end result was a, a massive success. The Spy Who Loved Me, off a budget of about fourteen million, took a hundred and eighty five ish worldwide, with about forty five of that at the U.S. box office. So a sizable hit. Tonight, and we'll talk about the production in a minute because British taxes and all that come into play. But the film tonight has a budget of 31 million, Whoa. which is an extraordinary rise. 
Um, off that though, it did 70 million at the US box office and it took 210 worldwide. Now to give that some context, Superman the movie was released about six months before and that took circa 300 million worldwide. Star Wars was released a couple of years before and took about 391 in its original release. So it's no longer the biggest series in the world by any means, but this is a sizable hit and it's it's comfortably above what the series has been doing in recent out, outings. That's why I got the image in Star Wars because it was going to be the next film was going to be Furious only, wasn't it? But then they brought forward Moonraker because of the whole Star Wars bandwagon. Well, you may have mentioned that actually at the end of the um, Spy Love Me podcast. I did. I can't remember now. Continuity. It was that it, long ago. It was that long ago. We recorded it back when we were like you know, teenagers. Um, <laughs> the, the, we're now in our forties. Yeah. <laughs> the Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, I'm in a care home. <laughs> they were still doing, well. He is, but he works there. Oh, okay. We're that. not really in our forties. Uh, <laughs> well, I am nearly, but. The um, the spy who loved me at the end of the film and said James Bond will return in for your eyes only, so that should have been the film released in this slot. But thanks to Star Wars, that didn't happen. But thanks to Star Wars, things changed, um, and it didn't change because they had a nice ready-made book with Bond going into space, as we alluded to earlier. <laughs> it's simply because it's got the word Moon in its name, and they had to cash in on that. But there's a lot of things around this era that cash in. The original Battlestar Galactica, the resurrection of Star Trek, we'll come to all of that. But um, I'd like to hand off to Chris to see what he makes of Moonraker. Moonraker is Bond that is most batshit, really. It's always been like the the fun. It, the mo- oh, I say the most fun Roger Moore Bond. I mean, like it's it's a film where you watch growing up and it's like cool. It's Bond in space. It's like two worlds coming together. It's like. Yes, it's like he gets lasers, gets on the spaceship and his lasers and pew pew and all this stuff. And it's pretty like, yeah, cool. You watch it now, you go like, what the fuck were they thinking making this? <laughs> but um, to be honest, over the past few weeks, it's actually one of the most enjoyable Roger Moore films that we've uh, we come across um, out, out of the four so far. Um, it actually works a lot better than previous weeks as much as um, we, we like mainly uh, Spy Love Me and Live That Die uh, but it's, I think this is kind of the most consistent of the Roger Moore films it kind of s- sticks to a certain tone because I think it knows it's all out silly and just goes yeah fuck it I think the thing I'd like to say before we sort of before Becca sort of weighs in with her thoughts on the film is in talking to people on social media, uh, you know, up through our through our account for this podcast, um, people tend to talk about three of our podcasts more than any other. Uh, they talk about the music one. Uh, they were very very pleased with the, the episode where Charlie came on, and Charlie will be on again in only four or five episodes' time when we finish with Roger Moore. Um, they talk a lot about the um, uh, the Honor Majesty Secret Service podcast because. We didn't just rave about it. We did actually break down. And I was quite proud of we, the fact we that we made, really uh, broke. We, we broke down why we thought, we thought about why we thought it was such a great film, though. But the podcast that we've done so far that gets the most feedback is the Diamonds Are Forever podcast because it was funny and we ripped it a new arsehole. And I think when people got think people see us getting to Moonraker, I think they assume we're going to do it again. 
and I, I have to kind of disappoint you all. I, Hopefully take, we'll be more balanced I this will time. take the piss as I go through this, but this film is absolutely nowhere near as bad as its reputation. It is a bottom half Bond film, there is no doubt. But someone only said to me today online, they said, um, we were talking about Moonraker and they quoted something from Spy Who Loved Me and they said, oh yeah, well that was the good one. And I just said, yeah, well you don't know what we're going to say about either yet. Um, but there's a serious point there. I, I, I alluded to this on The Spy Who Loved Me. The films aren't, aren't as far apart in quality as, as their reputations may suggest. But this has a really batshit concept and it pushes the humour just a little bit far in places. But it's not horrendous. Becca, what do you think? No, I can't. Well, I largely agree with both of you. But I think um, as much as I love Spy Love Me, it's such a schizophrenic movie. Um, Moonraker is definitely more balanced. Um, but I tend to think that when people think of the Roger Moore era with all its silliness and its kind of campiness, um, they tend to think of sort of Spy Love Me or Moonraker in particular. It's like Bond in space. It is batshit crazy. They're just tiring it all with the same brush. Um, it is more balanced. So funny. Has some of the best lines. Granted, most of those go to um, Drax. Michael yeah, Bonsdale. Probably the best villain Roger Moore comes up with. Definitely, or easily, for sure. Yeah, he just I mean, has so many great lines. I really enjoy only, quoting them the as we go one, on. The only one that could have matched him would have been Zorin, and there's lots of things with the Zorin performance that's wasted opportunity. He's amazing. Zorin is one of the amazing villains. Yeah, I think for problems. me, he stands out as a top tier Bond villain. Just not in the Roger Moore era, but in the whole Bond. <laughs> Sorry, with the whole there are Bond, problems um, with that film, and there genre. are problems with. Zorin's abilities or that the lack thereof. That yeah, actually... Zorin's a bit wasted, but he's, he's yeah. enjoyable. For but there's the enormous time we have. Pot- there's enormous potential. Yeah, they're Definitely. a great actor. Um, I, funny enough, growing up, I always thought like Drax was quite dull. Yeah, it's uh, a very understated performance that he gives. That's what it is. There's there's a real coldness in his eyes. Um, I, yeah, I like Drax. I think I'd go along with this. I mean, even if you prefer the spy, you love me. I'd, I'd be hard pushed push to put Stromberg above this. No, I would say it's because the, the plots are fairly similar. It's written by the same writer, Christopher Wood, so it's basically the same. You know, villain wants to create super race either in space or underwater. To be um, fair, they're plan, quite similar. Drax's plan makes more sense than uh, Stromberg's. It does. It makes more you know, sense. It's like, it's, it's well, the, the land and the oceans a bit more symbiotic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like, and plus also like the, 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 assuming that like. Sending two countries on war each other would destroy everyone, whereas this one definitely will destroy everyone. And, well, and then, like, and and then you can land already. where these all settle. It's a lot more surgical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of got half the plan already. He's creating his master race of perfect specimens. And then also, you have Jaws into the mix. So There are, I think, another reason this film suffers. I mean, most of it is its premise, its lazy shorthand of. It's a bit. I mean, Die Another Day thoroughly deserves its reputation, but a lot of people go, "Oh, yeah, the one with the invisible car." Well, that's far from my biggest problem with that film. And, um, it's, it's similar with this one. one. They go, "Oh, Bond in space." Well, yes, I agree. I think it was a stupid cash-in idea, but at the same time, it's a tiny part of the film. The the plot's laid out fairly well, probably better than last week, and I think that. A lot of the other big problem with the film, though, is repetition, because you've got the same henchmen as last week. You've got more or less a flavour of the same plot as last week. It's kind of like a hybrid because you got the Spy Who Loved Me basically remakes You Only Live Twice in that it's stealing competing countries' hardware. It's the same this, director as this, this doesn't copy that bit, but it copies the bit where we stand at a safe distance, exterminate, and then do like a master race. 
Um, but you've the got Daleks the same are involved, hench- exterminate. Yeah, <laughs> you've got the same uh, henchmen as last week. You've got, as I say, you've got the same plot. Uh, the leading lady has lots of similarities in her character, who she is. Um, but she's certainly better this time around. Yes, yeah, not as wooden. I disagreed until this run because I grew up thinking Barbara Park mainly because it was you know triple X and this you know yeah. spy and all the rest of it, and she's really attractive, and the film is quite iconic. I, I yeah, I totally agree. Now I don't know what the hell I was thinking. Lois Childs is so so much better, and is believe. I mean, like she's obviously she's a very attractive lady, but she's actually believable like as a doctor. Yeah, you can, you can buy that oh, she's a doctor I, I, and a CIA agent and a NASA trained astronaut and one thing or another. Yeah, or you can kind of like there's there's a she looks intelligent, you know, and she's it's, competent, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, she's one of the few Bond girls that can actually yeah. that, that can best or you know that can meet Bond at the same level. Yeah, she's witty. She's kind of like oh, she's, she's like intelligent. Dry. Yeah, and I think you, the thing that the I think the thing I've 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 had to do a, a lot is kind of drop this thinking of like my end rankings on this. Because there's no doubt that I'm going to be hard, harsh about some films that will end up ranking lower, uh, uh, sorry, higher than some I was quite kind to. It's all context to expectations and everything. So I've really had to work hard to forget The Spy Who Loved Me this week. Taken on its own terms, I'm going to be relatively kind to this, but it is mental. (laughs) (laughs) Bond in space. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it starts with, and again... uh, a lot of my problems with Roger Moore are really starting to show up now. Um, not his age. I think he looks better than he did in The Spy Who Loved Me. He wears a lot of black in this movie as well. I don't know. But obviously, he doesn't, he doesn't need to lose any weight. He looks good. Weight. He looks good. Yeah, I think he looks pretty good in this. His hair's a bit tidier. He's a bit neater. And he's. Um, I think he's lost a little weight. So Roger Moore really looks the part in this film. He's still, good, he still does look a bit old, though. He's, I think at this point, for me, he does start to look a little bit ancient. I mean, it does. It gets to obviously um, a view to a cut where he is. Is your granddad? The next film is what when he yeah when he's sharing a hotel with a fellow pensioner. Um, <laughs> but but here, I think he still looks he looks the business. Yeah, I mean, the, the big difference when I watched them all close together recently, the big difference is to for you only live. Uh, sorry, for your eyes only. And I don't know if some of that's psychological as a viewer because we've crossed into another decade, but there just seems to be a big difference between this film and the next one. But yeah, I think the craziness of I know we say Bond in space and that only happens for the last third of the film, mm. but I mean you've got something as extreme as you know a space battle and then this you know the only way is down pretty much you've kind of got to really bring it back down to earth and have a more grounded plot as it were. Well, so I think that's why the end set pe- um, sequence it works exactly the same way as. Uh, like at the end of any other really bomb film, it's just that instead of guns, they put lasers in the hands. Pew, pew. Really, that's you know that's the only real yeah, difference. Yeah, You know, and, and the fact that it's in space and and then you have people floating up in space and that. But yeah, that's pretty much you know. I mean, it's a stu- it's a stupid idea, but they they kind of. I mean, he could have gone into space and you only lived twice quite easily, if you think about the way that plot unfolded. But let's row back a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning. If we talk about um, the pre-title, I think this is a microcosm with, of my problems with Roger Moore. In that, I think I had a good laugh at this sequence. There's some really funny bits in it, and we'll get to them. But it's actually a pretty tense, well-made sequence. 
It's quite short, isn't it? I think it's probably one of the shortest really pre-title scenes in the whole series. It, that kind of underscores it a little bit. It is short. You're right, Becker. It's an awful lot shorter than I think most of them around this period. Yeah. I think it starts sure. off with... Uh, we basically get, uh, like... You get to see actual Moonraker the shuttle being transported and it getting stolen and whatnot. So you get that introduction. Get, um, do you, do you and get... Lois Lane's inside reporting for the Daily Planet. Lois Lane. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, do you, do you go to M, if I remember correctly? Do you go to M after that, and you, and you send to the office? Oh well, get 007 or I just think of a different one. Uh, yeah, where I, is he? He's on his last leg, sir. He, he's there because I noticed a he was on the red phone, which made me the think of our bat. He's on the bat phone. <laughs> he was on the bat phone, and then he opens the door, and Money Penny looks like she's got a really tight perm. <laughs> And right, I, I just feel so harsh being hard on her because the fact is she's getting older. You know, people age, and if they're still casting her, why wouldn't she take a paycheck? She still it's, looks it's, glam, it's, though. It's, you think so? I think she looks really strange. <laughs> not her, her not, not, not her, her build, her DNA, anything like that. Just the style of the era. They yeah, kind of put this really strange type. The era that style forgot. Oh, absolutely. And then it's, it's a really forced joke because when you think of the last film, as much as I've got problems with The Spy Who Loved Me, this is kind of like a pale imitation. Because in the last film, we have tell him to pull out immediately. Mm. And this time, quite he's on a his funny last line. leg. <laughs> it's on his last leg. That's a he's hitting the same forced. beats, isn't it? Yeah, he's kind of rubbing a woman's leg. <laughs> Any higher, Mr. Bond, my ears will pop. <laughs> Which I, 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 I need to quote the film as we go along. Anatomy after that, because I had no idea that's what happened. <laughs> But it's. Uh, it's but anyway, not... we cut to cut to Bond on a course. He's with a lady. <laughs> well, it is kind of similar. He's, he's, yeah. he's coming back from the African mission, whatever that was. You know what that is. And, I, I uh, just love how like how they just don't explain. Oh, he was off in Scandinavia. Oh, he was off doing that. We don't need any more. On that. <laughs> we don't need any more details. Was it one of the earlier films where they mentioned a Rome affair? Was it um, uh, Living Let Die? Oh. It was... Well done, yes, it was, Roman cause, yeah, it was because he had the Roman, uh, not the Roman, the Italian. All these missions are yet to mine. I'd like to know what went on. You know, what, what was the Rome affair? What happened? Well, I've always kind of thought that's that's the books, if you know what I mean. Not yeah, in Fleming much. books, but the continuation ones. If you think of all the like Raymond Benson books or something like that. Yeah, they're probably like Pierce Brosnan books, the missions we didn't see. No. Um, anyway, so moving on, Bond's feeding up a woman. He's feeling up a woman. <laughs> he gets very close to like the the prize, and then he gets interrupted by a gun. Nameless villain. And I just think you know his hand his handy works not great, is it? Because he's missed the fact she's got a gun on her. Yeah, he didn't spot that. So Mister Trick there, Bond. Now, what what? Basically, he goes to jump off the plane, and Jaws is there or Summer. How the hell did this? <laughs> well, henchman for hire. Well, basically, the guy comes up with a gun, uh, assuming it's the pilot, and he goes like, "Ha ah, ha, Mister Bond! Uh, like your your time is up!" And he shoots the controls of the plane, and he's like got a parachute on, ready to like basically leave Bond in a in in a crashing plane, essentially. Yes. Um, and he had, so he has a bit of fight, and he thinks it's a good idea to push a man out of a plane who's got a parachute. <laughs> okay, well, well done, well done, James. That's a good idea. Yeah, uh, and, then, and, then, and then Jaws so basically far, comes yeah. up and pushes him out of the plane himself. It's like, oh, there's Jaws, crap. Right, but after this, Jaws works for a completely different person, so he is totally for hire. But, he is. He's like henchman for hire. But, um, it's Let's also find out later on. The stunt work is starting to get obvious. 
I mean, I, the last few weeks, because I was I was watching like the f- original series of Star Trek, but if you remember this, this, and we I was talking about how like because of the TV sizes, they wouldn't even bother hiding stunt work, and then I'd come back to like a Bond film for this, where I'm quite used to the fact that it's not Roger Moore doing half of it, and then I was surprised to find he was doing a lot more than I remembered. Well, tonight that starts to go. Starts to fall apart. It does because several do times in the, this fight on the plane, which is quite short, and there's nothing too dramatic in it. It's a guy with slightly longer hair who weighs less. Um, and when they jump out the plane, the funny thing is that, and the second thing is when they jump out the plane and he catches up with the bloke with the um, parachute, he immediately sticks his face right in the guy's asshole. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> and I'm thinking, as uh, as tactics go. That would be quite distracting. I can see how that might work. I think that's just unfortunate, just the way he falls. It's just, you know, it's very difficult, I would imagine, to manoeuvre. You know, I don't think he did that on purpose. But, I mean, imagine how hard it is to hit the arsehole. That's quite impressive. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's a strange sequence because it's a really good skydive and the, the camera works on it is really good. It is quite impressive. It is, I think it's a For good For its era, I mean, a lot of this film's got a ton of back projection in it. And there doesn't appear to be that much in this sequence. No, this one looks really well good. You've got, yeah. you got the fight between Bond and Jaws as well, which is really good. Yeah, mm. I mean, you've got to think by at the time as well. I mean, this is still 79? <laughs> it's like pre-green it screen. It's everything... Well, you've got green screen, but what you, have, what you haven't got at this time is everything is practical or optical. Yeah, so you've cool. either got to do it in shot or you've got to do it on the film afterwards, which basically means with a Bond film, you're doing it in shot. So yeah, it's really effects. impressive, and and funnily enough, the stunt work looks more obvious on the plane than it does when they're skydiving. <laughs> it does. It's that's actually, true. It actually kind of sells me it's Roger Moore after that, um, and it, it's a it's a sign as well. I mean, I, I haven't looked at the cinematographer is a French guy. Um, I, I don't know. Say we've already mentioned finances, so I won't go into it again. But when we get to the um, just skipping forward for a moment, when we get to M's office in a bit. That shot in France because they shot very, very little in England. Because as I've alluded to on a previous podcast, well, taxes worldwide, but particularly in Britain at that time, were eye-watering. And there was lots of different tax breaks to go different places in the world. So this was an Anglo-French production. Hence, Drax is played by a Frenchman and the cinematographer is French. And I have to say, this is a really good-looking film. Yeah, it does look really good. And plus, you wouldn't know that it was shot in France as well. But the problem is... It ends up with Jaws flapping his hands and some circus music. But, yeah, this is this is my <laughs> only problem with with this sequence. I mean, obviously, you know, Jaws was for for a generation this terrifying villain, and obviously the fans wrote in and said, you know, why don't you make him a good guy? And now he's just this figure of fun. You just see him flapping his hands and he hears ridiculous circus well, music. Well, he, he, he goes to bite his leg. And like, yeah, does he have poisonous teeth? I mean, what exactly is that? <laughs> I suppose you How's do that going to kill Bond? Yeah, I suppose you would. Yeah, crack a major artery. I guess I don't know. Uh, listeners, just to remind you, Chris is about to go to university to study nursing, and he wasn't aware there's major arteries in the legs. Be afraid. <laughs> That's what you're going to learn, Chris. It's okay. <laughs> I've not studied it yet. All right, okay. <laughs> It'll be Dr. Chris by the end of it, so watch out, you know. Well, Dr. Chris, no thank you. I'm not going to be doctor. It'll be Nurse Chris by the end of it. Yes, Even but yeah, anyway, now yeah, but come on, it's, it's just, it goes to like sort of bite his muscle. It's like that's not really bite your bum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as I say, that, that that's in a nutshell a lot of the problems I have with this film. That 
it's not so much a schizophrenic tone because it's kind of goofy all the way through, but even even in a lot of there are a lot of scenes where tension gets under undercut by it, and I think this is one of them. It pretty and much I, sets out the tone for the whole film, doesn't <laughs> it? As he lands into the circus tent, having survived his several thousand feet fall, yeah, um, <laughs> we get this strange kind of it like. Must all the flappy any, hands he did. We get a drum roll as a any silhouette rolls into a close-up of its crotch, <laughs> which is bizarre. And then we cut into the most boring song in the series. <laughs> oh, oh, Dame Shirley! But it, it, is, it is, it is the least forgettable song. Least forgettable. You mean most forgettable? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> That's what I meant. Sorry. It actually it's feeds into. We I mean, will come on to score later. It feeds into a pretty good score, but this sequence is not great, is it? And the song's not brilliant. I must say, it's... I don't. Know, I, I quite like this song. It's kind of like a nice, kind of relaxing ballad. Well, it's grown it, on it, me over my five. I mean, you can fall asleep to it. The ti- yeah, exactly. The title sequence is not that memorable, but um, I don't I mean, know. I, I like sh- Breakers. I nice struggle and... to remember what Moonraker theme song was for when I was a kid. I was like, "Where's Moonraker?" I can remember everyone else's, but. What is Moonraker? Then I, then I watched it and I realised, oh, that's why I couldn't remember yeah. it. because it's... When I was growing up, I had a similar sort of problem with um, Few Eyes Only, but I think it's grown on me as I've, as I've got older. So, well, uh, yes, yeah, so it's not very memorable, this one. This has grown on me a bit just because I have watched the film quite a lot lately. Um, <laughs> is it fourth time it, now? <laughs> it's quite a good score because when we get to. There are several points in this film where I hear the score. And it sounds a bit like his Somewhere in Time score, which I'm really, really fond of, and is the following year. So he's actually made a pretty good score out of it using bits of this song. But Oh, yeah, no, the, the score itself is amazing. I love, as you all know, well, we all love John Barry. Um, but yeah, in terms of the song, I mean, I, that's your theme song. I'd probably like it better than you guys. And I think at the end of the film, we get a disco version of it, don't we? So a bit more upbeat. Yeah, which isn't any better, really. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but then again, I, I don't really like disco music. I think it's like reggae is one of the laziest forms of music. <laughs> disco, disco. Just wait till we get to few hours only. That'll be disco tastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's next, <laughs> week. that's next week, folks. Yes. Um, anyway, so on to that, we go to the M scene. I felt with this M scene, I mean, I will say now at the outset, I really hope Chris cuts Bernard Lee into the uh, sequence that he uses to start this show. A, because I always want Bernard Lee, but B, because it's his last. His last film. Um, Bernard Lee was in pre-production on... Uh, sorry, For Your Eyes only had started filming, but then got to the M scene yet, and Bernard Lee was taken ill and died. Uh, so this is his last last entry, and it's actually one of his better ones. There's a really great scene in Venice coming up later. He really goes out on a hide, doesn't he, I think? Yeah, he does, but I do think this sequence is a he bit... He does get something to do in this one. He does. And but I we, feel... we kind of get... Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Carry on, Becca. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, we kind of get um, not one, but two kind of M and Q scenes, don't we, as well? Plus, we see him here in, in France, and then again in a monastery somewhere. Oh, thank you for reminding me of um, the Q bit. Because when they cut to the office, Des- <laughs> I love Desmond Llewellyn, but he's not a particularly good actor. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> he's pacing the room and sort of looking concerned. <laughs> and next time you see it, just look again. The director's <laughs> obviously said to him, you're really worried, Desmond. <laughs> <laughs> it's just quite funny. His oh, concerned overacting is quite funny. But the fact that Bond walks in the room and they're straight into it, although that's quite efficient storytelling, it kind of makes it feel a bit by numbers as well. 
Yeah, it's a one point number star. Is there something comforting about that though? I mean, like you know. That's what I said like about Spectre as well. You get to see you know MC Bond getting chewed up. You know? Oh, we love the office. We love that's, the office, yeah. and we love the MC. That's what. Yeah, it's like yeah. comfort food, as we said in previous episodes. It's seeing that again. It's the familiarity of it. But. Um... I mean, he's an instant expert as well. Uh, well, no, he actually outlines what the story might be. It's not so bad. But then he's given um, those darts to go on his wrist. <laughs> wrist activity dart gun. Which he immediately shoots into some priceless piece of art. Because <laughs> I thank you, 007. <laughs> oh, thank you! <laughs> um, and I don't really know what I make of this. I, I just think... It's quite gadget light, really, isn't it? Apart from that... Um, it's not too bad, but I just think... The, Ray Gun and other things like that. It's a fairly gadget light movie. They've crammed Q into this scene a bit. We see him again later on. So it's it's okay. good they didn't use that grenade um, sort of sling thing. So. Oh, the balls, oh. Q, bowlers, 007. <laughs> <laughs> we'll discuss that again when we come to it later on. But, but, but Roger looks pretty good here. And he's That's a nice sent, suit he's wearing. And he's sent off to investigate Hugo Drax because Hugo Drax basically built the Moonraker, did he not? Yeah the, yeah, the missing shuttle was stolen, so obviously Bond's going to investigate. So he, yeah. he owns the Drax Corporation, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he meets um, pilot Corinne Dufour, played by Corinne Cleary. No, that's not her name. Played by Corinne Cleary. Sorry, excuse me. And this is the one. I don't, for those of you who listen to James Bond Radio, go back to when they like review Moonraker, because Chris seriously goes soppy over this character. Mm, Chris, off, Chris off that show, not our Chris. Really yeah. loves her. Um, yeah, it's, That's just, a good episode. it's just like it, it's just like well, she's quite attractive and stuff. But my God, what have you seen that we haven't? But, um, <laughs> she, she, I'll, I'll leave that for you guys. I'm not going to we say? Yeah, definitely. It's she a, could it's be in Charlie's the... Angels. Yes, she could. She's got that look about her. I think she's very glamorous. But at um, this point, it's all being told fairly straight, isn't it? Bonds off on an investigation. Again, the cinematography is beautiful. Uh, the, I, you know, if you paused the film at this point, and I'd never seen it, um, knew nothing about it, I'd be really positive. I, th- I think at this point, they've sent him off on quite an interesting um, mission, and when he gets to meet Drax... You were seeing quite early on, didn't we? Yeah, the set design's lovely, and as well, and... Um, Drax had, it's just, this is when Drax had a good line of, like, take care of Mr. Bond, see, make sure that some harm comes to him. That's a brilliant line. That's one yeah. of his many excellent lines. <laughs> yeah, there's some speeding up on the whole dog thing and the dog food. Oh, yeah, yeah. He feeds the dog some meat, doesn't he? And but there's a little bit of sped I up quite like that. I quite like the. the it it kind of reminds me of that bit in Last Action Hero where he clicks his fingers and they're all like standing on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's where they get that from. Probably. Oh, hilarious. But no, I like the whole kind of. Because, like, with, with Bond, obviously, he's very cultured. He knows the suits to wear. He needs the cigarettes to smoke. He knows the, the alcohol to drink and one thing or another. Um, Drax is equally quite cultured. Obviously, reference to, like, Oscar Wilde and playing. Well, the afternoon playing tea. Playing the piano. I don't office, yeah, afternoon tea. A that's cucumber it. Sandwich. Can I push you to a cucumber sandwich? Which I always thought was kind of the stuff of it. Do people really <laughs> eat cucumber sandwich? Because that strikes me as the most bland food you could possibly eat. Well, essentially, it's like, you might as well just say, can I, can I have a water based sandwich, please? Yeah, that, just pour, pour a bit of water onto the bread. <laughs> no, this is it. I must say, I, when I for my 30th birthday last year, I went to have um, a lovely present where we were having afternoon tea at Harrods, and it was very lovely. And it was literally about, like, you know, salmon and pressed cucumber and, you know, it was typically English. We thought we were recording with a young hottie. <laughs> you're in your 30s we're, we've no, got to no, sorry. past it, sorry lads. No, um, I've heard before <laughs> people go to Harrods for lunch. Their lunches are rather expensive, aren't they? 
Um, it was a special birthday, so it was a one off. We didn't do it all the time. So, oh. so one off. What, what's you treated to cucumber sandwiches? It's <laughs> not much of a treat, is it? Well, no, it's, it's, my, my whole point is that it was very That's typically like English. So. <laughs> that, that was my point, that it was all typically English. So, yeah. Anyway, my point is that Jack's is very cultured. <laughs> I, I wish they wouldn't stick them all in the Nehru jacket. Is, is I, it a Nehru jacket, though? Well, it looks, the colour looks slightly different. Maybe it is, but it certainly evokes what Blofeld wears. And I kind of think that's always limited because the performance yeah, is quite Yeah, but he understated. wears it so well, though. But because the performance is quite understated, when I watched this when I was younger, it was like, oh, it's just another Bond villain and he's a bit dull. But he wears different culinary jackets throughout the film. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, next we see Dr. Goodhead. Ah, now Dr. Goodhead. Now, this is one of the, the funniest things about the film for me. Not funny, haha, but funny. Oh, uh, woman. In the, Your powers of observation do you good, Mr. Bond. In the, yeah, I can't believe even 1979 they put that line in. We got, you know, it's women's lib and all the rest of it, isn't it? So. It's just, yeah, he just goes, a woman? And you just think, what? Really? A female doctor? <laughs> it, I mean, Christ. It, every male in their life must have seen a female doctor at that point by then at some point. But it was just the fact that she's always she's always got kind of a smoky voiced kind of Lauren Bacall quality to her actually mm, that's and, true. and it's kind of it's very understated and a lot of unkind critics have said that she kind of doesn't look interested it's quite a like phoned in performance and I have mm-hmm. to say when I've watched it this few these few this several times um, because I've watched it four times in about as many weeks now um, <laughs> and I watched it in the build up to the Roger Moore era so I've seen it five times since about September oh, some of that was my fault <laughs> that's right. but um, it's actually a much much better performance than I remember I, that's, what, I, that's actually, what I kind of like about this film it's very much understated I mean you haven't is. got the really out there kind of villain scheme but you have it really it's very much understated all the way through even though the plot is actually crazy. <laughs> it is, but I mean, she shows him around now, and again, as much as I think this series is meant, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest Roger Moore fan, and, and everything I've said before, they take him in now to this sort of centrifuge thing to sort of generate G-forces, and apart from some bad speeding up in it, and the fact that Drax's butler seems to be like a kung fu expert. Oh, Char. Is it Chang or Char, whatever his name is? Um... Kato, basically. <laughs> it's yeah, it's Kato. a really good sequence. And boy, Toshio, oh, I have to say, that Roger Moore is fantastic in this sequence. Toshio, Zuko, I think his name is. He, he's put in a centrifuge just to give him an idea of how they train to um, simulate G forces. He turned it up to 11. Because she explains to Bond she's a trained astronaut. astronaut sorry. And they, um, they, it goes up to about 20 G. She makes the point most people pass out at 13, was it she said? Yeah, and 20 Gs would be fatal. And at 7 G, um, there's like a safety button he can press. And so that's good visual storytelling because you've got the... the I just want to know, what's he doing in the thing anyway? Like, why does he need to be in? Because it's just a, a demonstration. Just a plot device. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a plot device, but it's also a demonstration. It's all, it's a, this is how we train our astronauts. Would you it also like shows that some harm can come to 007. Yes. <laughs> And effectively, it goes up to, I don't know, 13, 15, 16G, whatever it might be. I can't remember now. Um, because she's called off to go and see Drax, which is a ruse just to leave him in the hands of Drax's henchmen. And it's just a good sequence in that they use some compressed air 
um, to do the sequence that Roger Moore would press press something and it would blow air in his face. <laughs> so you genuinely believe he's undergoing these G forces, and when he gets out, he looks genuinely messed up. By he really does look messed up, doesn't he? And he doesn't overact it either. He doesn't say anything. He's just like oh, and struggles to get out. You think, oh Jesus! But normally, you know. get out and roll his eye. You know what Roger Moore can be like. He probably like walks out, sort of under, like does his cufflinks or something. Yeah, shoots his cuffs and then like, walks it sort off. of strains his tie a bit. But this time, he's generally like he's leaning against the wall. <sighs> he's really struggling, isn't he? Yeah, he really is. And uh, I think it's a really good sequence. It's contrived as hell, but the whole film is. But the, this seems very tense, though. I think it's one of the most tense scenes <laughs> in, in the whole Roger era. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I quite like the scene. I think it's, uh, I mean, grow, grow. I mean, half half my review is going to be th- sort of thinking about this film growing up and then watching this film now. Back then, I was kind of like this was kind of one of the least memorable part of films. Like, kind of yeah, okay, whatever. Now I think I actually is it's quite a relevant sort of uh, scene now because it's it's a rare chance for for Rogers to kind of get roughed up a little bit. We get a bit more of that next week, but. Um, it's like a sign that saying, "Oh, Roger's like you know this kind of delicate flower can't really be touched." And but this time he actually shows like actually no, I can have a little toughness in my character a little bit. I think. No, you, get to see, you don't get to see that very often from Roger, do we? It's kind of more like raised eyebrows. Well, well, but but when you do, he he normally fluffs it. To be fair, most of the time when you start beating Roger up, it's all rolling eyes and you know. Oof, like, oof, oof. <laughs> And all that kind of thing. It's like when he fights him, it's all the judo chops that, you know, it's just... Judo <laughs> chop. You know, he, he, he isn't a great actor. He's not a, he's not an embarrassingly bad one either, but he, he's not great. But I have to say, this would be like on his showreel. You know, if you had yeah, to show really someone what can Roger Moore do, this this sequence is really good. Yeah, it's a very tense sequence. Absolutely. So next he goes to pump Corin for information. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's a... <laughs> Hang on, I've just realised Becca means sex. <laughs> That's just rude. <gasps> is is that what Money Penny, Money Penny thought uh, meant when when uh, in Tomorrow Never Dies? Yeah. Oh, <gasps> you don't say. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway. Hang on a minute. You're suggesting that people who run MI5 and work for them are telling Bond to go out and and like have sex with unsuspecting women. No. For information. <laughs> For information. Only for information purposes. Not even for romance. They don't even say go out and like romance her. Yeah, buy a dinner. I think I'm out from this series. Forget it. (laughs) I know. I I need. I need to. I don't know if it's because of the DVD, um, the Blu-ray, even. But um, has she got like a little tattoo on her hand? I don't know. It's it's nothing to do with the film, but I just happened to notice it because it was on the Blu-ray. Well, in my five viewings, I've not noticed it. Oh, okay. So (laughs) I don't know. I don't know to be honest. It might well be, but I, I haven't noticed. Okay. She's a very disposable character, although she does do. She's a sacrificial lamb in the film. Yeah, yeah she's yeah, a very grisly. She does end. demonstrate. I mean, death she... is kind of brutal. Yeah, um, it is actually quite surprisingly brutal. Uh, I think it's one of the most brutal deaths in the series. Yeah, it's most memorable. Definitely one of Roger Moore's. Um, it's not graphic, uh, obviously, but it's. No, you don't see it. She's kind of literally. Um, it always reminds me of Tilly Masterson, but it's far worse than that because she's written. No, it's similar, up. isn't it, to Tilly? Yeah. I think it's just that she's running into the woods for escape. Yeah. No. Tilly Masterman, Masterson, it's just like a crack to the neck, and that's it. 
Whereas this one, you think about it, think that's actually quite a nasty way to go. I mean, unless they literally bit a windpipe immediately. Yeah. No. People have died in some pain. Well, unless, for some reason, our listeners have not seen this film, obviously she's chased by a pack of dogs, which is yeah. very horrendous. It's the very Dobermans, I think, that are... Um, They're eating the meat in a speeded-up fashion. <laughs> Absolutely. That's no, getting forward a bit, but... Um, Actually, that that sequence. So basically, he goes to he sleeps with her, and he ends up going to the safe in Drax's office for information. And what does he find? Uh, something to do with Vanini glass. Yeah, <laughs> lead him to Venice, where he meets not Helen Slater. We'll come to... <laughs> not Helen Slater. Not Helen Slater. Oh, okay. Um, it's a bit. No, like... We don't know what her name is. Yes, but she looks like Helen Slater. She does a little bit. Helen Slater's clone. So anyway, she went before he goes to meet not Helen Slater. Um, he goes out hunting with Drax, which is again a totally contrived scene, but it does lead to one of Roger Moore's better lines. What did I? Did I? Yeah, in absence of anything, if I if someone said to me what was Roger Moore's best line in the Bond film, and I just went. Did I? They'd go, well, what? But in context... There's an air of smugness to that. (laughs) Yeah, but again, he doesn't deliver it as smug as I thought he would be. Basically, Drax takes him hunting, and they're shooting pheasants or whatever it is. He's got snipers all around. And he's got a sniper up in the tree. And Bond's, like, you know, shouts pull or whatever. And he, he turns to shoot, and he's pointing in the wrong direction. He shoots a guy. Drax says, you missed. And he says, did I? <laughs> as a guy falls to the earth. Ah, <laughs> that's a brilliant line. That's a brilliant, yeah, brilliant scene. But the only thing that's weird is when he first turns up, Drax says meet and introduces him to two fit women for no reason at all. Mademoiselle Devonshire no, and. Devin got, Shirt and... nothing to do with the scene at all. It's just, oh, these people. just we're just going to cram it a bit more eye candy. <laughs> I, think, I think it's kind of. It's, it's interesting. Like, and that's it. Because usually we kind of get like the the plot kind of pretty much straight away. Obviously, there's a, there's um, a monologue at the end which Drax gives us. But I think. The way, obviously, the, the Not Helen <laughs> that we see in, in Vanini Oh, yeah, yeah. When he goes to see Not Helen Slater. And, and these, but, yeah, so firstly, this is... And these women uh, that you see along the way, they turn out to be um, Drax's part of his master race, yes, don't they? Which I think is quite clever. You do see Not Helen Slater later on. <laughs> when, he gets to, um, when he gets to Venice, I have to say, Venice has appeared in a few Bond films now, including Casino Royale, which is within, within the last decade. Mm. I don't think it's ever been shot as nicely as in this film. It looks beautiful. It really does. It's it's a beautiful film, and uh, yeah, he goes to uh, not Helen Slater's gallery. <laughs> Please go anywhere you wish. And and she's like giving a talk, and then she sets eyes on Bond. And I don't know if it's my imagination, but Roger Moore is such a woman magnet at this point that she seems. <laughs> yes, get, anyway. <laughs> she seems to get a little bit wet just looking at him, which I just find incredible. I mean, well, he's, Bond he's is Bond. just irresistible at this point. He is. That's what it's what it's all about. But I think in the in the Venice scene, um, just before he goes into the Vanini Goss kind of shop, as it were, um, you can see cameos of Michael Wilson, Cubby Broccoli, and Bob Broccoli, and also Lewis Gilbert, if you look closely enough. They're all in there. Oh, I meant to say, actually, this is the first film um, that uh, Michael G. Wilson has a big role in. Oh, yeah, there's a cameo in, isn't he? Time yeah, but, I mean, he's, he's, he's been assistant to and those sorts of roles. Mm, and now he's a producer. the early 70s, but he's actually, I think, an exec producer at this point. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, fun fact, Bond fans. Next, Bondilla. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is now... I, I looked at the clock, and I've been doing this since I first noticed what, you know, die another day for. 
into the abyss after a good a promising start. <laughs> into the abyss. Um, I just want to say the double taking pigeon happens at 41 minutes. Oh, and the film never quite recovers. <laughs> um, because at this point, we've got a reasonably decent kind of story. And Bond is doing some investigating. And the film looks beautiful. He's shagging like it's going out of fashion. So I imagine he's on the penicillin by now. It's all ruined by the double taking pigeon. But he's doing really well. And then he's he's going along in his gondola. Gondola, it's called. Yes, it is. In a minute. It's, a, it's a gondola at this point. But it becomes a bondola. When it sort of inflates so he can get up into St. Mark's Square. They had to do five takes of this. And thankfully, uh, Roger Moore had five suits. Because he got (laughs) got tipped into the water five times. Or or four times and the fifth time they did it. Something like that. (laughs) And they get up into St. Mark's Square. And he drives this gondola through the packed crowds. And he gets the funny reaction shot... From the same guy who was on the beach in The Spy Who Loved Me, because he's such a celebrity, everyone would remember. It's Victor Doljanski, his name is. <laughs> I had to look it up, I couldn't remember his name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, wow. deliber- we deliberately left that silence for the final Yes, thank edit. you, I had to look it up. Victor That's not Dojanski. being edited, because it's like Becca knows his name. Uh, and then we I, get no, I, I, I kind of didn't want to know his name because I, I yeah, it's him. He always needs to be the the drunk guy who keeps turning up. Yeah, I won't remember <laughs> it. Next week is it's much more fitting. Well, these, these these sort of films that Lewis Gilbert does. I mean, here obviously you've got the Monorail trilogy as he's known known for, mm. but now we also have the Victor Torjansky trilogy. So we had the Spy Love Me, Moonraker, and Few Eyes Only. So there we are. I just thought I mentioned him for you. Yeah, this film's edited by John Glenn, who actually steps up to director next time. And fluffs this joke actually. You see, when you see it, and uh, I mean, it's not a great joke. I, I'm really not that fond of it, but I have to say, of of all the versions of this joke of the guy like looking at his drink and vowing never to drink again until they next make a Bond film, <laughs> uh, they really, was... really, they do fluff it in for your eyes only because he kind of has to leap up to get into shot. But um, it's a really it's it, you suddenly go right. Well, this scene's lost the plot. This film's lost the plot now, and. It was bad enough when the when the craft inflated and started on land. But well, it's bad they, enough when the guy came out of the coffin and started throwing knives. That's pretty yeah. bad as well. That, that takes awful. some planning. But you've got really silly music over it, just like we did last week in The Spy Love Me. It's like, well, you've, you've been telling a relatively straight story, albeit fairly humorous, and now you've put really silly music over it. Um, but then you get the double-taking pigeon, which, of all the things that... You'll hear lots of shorthand in this series of, oh, that's Bond in space. Oh, that's the invisible car. Oh, that's the one with... This is the one with the double-taking pigeon. This is the one with the double-taking pigeon, but it's the one that actually deserves it because it's a really stupid idea. And it's a really silly sort of rocking forward and back of the, the film through the camera to get the sort of pigeon to look twice. It looks terrible. It's not funny. And I don't know if it's Lewis Gilbert or Roger Moore. But for whatever, whichever the case, we've now got a series that, whilst this film is nowhere near as bad as its reputation, where it does things well, and so far the film's been doing very well, and Venice is a beautiful location shot so nicely, they're underscoring it with humour that just isn't funny. It's just, I think it's just embedded in, I think... But the way that Roger is, Roger's like type of Bond is more humorous. I think they figured out that like, oh, 
people like this it's kind of silly humor well, it's we'll all slapstick, keep, isn't it? We'll keep on doing more of this. I mean, like, I mean, you will find that it's it's still embedded uh, even into a little bit in Timothy Dalton's more. It's you know, even though he his his take is a heck of a lot more serious, you still find little bits of silliness in License to Kill because you still have a winking fish at the end of the film. You know, well, you even get it. You get it next week. I mean, next week we we will be covering a much more serious Bond film. How good it is, we'll get to. I think we've always been fond of it, but you you could almost argue, and we'll talk about this next week, as to whether we're so fond of it because it's such a reaction to this. Is it really that good, or is it just, wow, Roger Moore's doing a relatively straight Bond film? But the fact is, even the straight Bond film ends with a silly parrot and Roger um, Margaret Margaret Thatcher Thatcher joke. Margaret Thatcher, yeah. And it's it's just not funny. It, it's like I think I might have said this during the Spy Who Loved Me. It's funny in the same way that the Star Wars prequels are funny. You know, it's kind of like silly and goofy, and it's just like, well, silly and goofy is fine, but you know, why not go the whole hog and just put Leslie Nielsen in this? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, why don't why not just make it like the spitting image Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just, yeah, just, just make it a full-on comedy. And the, a lot of my problems with the Roger Moore era is it doesn't know what it wants to be. And it and it just screams insecurity to me. It it doesn't actually suggest well they know they're comedic and they're playing that for all it's worth. They finish off quite straight sequences quite comedically, and it's almost like well, uh, will this sell? Because he's not very good at action. Uh, put a joke in. Yeah, and, yeah, and it, funny. It's the such a shame. I do wonder, right? Whether I mean, we we all we watch these films now with a retrospective head. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. We, you yeah. know we, we. I wonder at the time were critics actually saying, "Oh, it's so entertaining. We love those funny moments." You know, is and that's the reason why I think they're at there. the time it was changing by degree as well, Chris. That you know, if you start off with a, sequ- a series that's, we can all think of series like it if we thought hard enough, where they started quite straight and then they got a little bit funnier and a little bit funnier, and by their third or fourth entry or fifth entry or whatever. They don't bear much relation to the series we knew first. And I think that, like, I mean, I said this, I think I said this in the original version of this show, but this is the same series as the Spy Lobby. Uh, sorry, not the Spy Lobby. This is the same series as From Russia With Love. Yeah. yeah. That's just amazing when you think about it. It's a complete world away, isn't but it? But it hasn't almost. changed overnight. Well, From Russia With Love wasn't the previous film. We're talking like twenty years of yeah, twenty years ago. We're talking like you know seven, sixteen years ago at this mm. point. So the previous film had plenty of silliness in it, as did the couple before that. And Diamonds wasn't particularly straight. So you know, of the several of the last several films, the only really straight one has been Majesties. Really, I mean, they've all had humour in them. They all they all do. But since you only live twice, they've been going in a sillier direction. So I guess it wouldn't have been as jarring at the time, and I'm trying so hard not to keep that sort of Daniel Craig is James Bond head on because he's the current James Bond at the time of recording, and you know say well compared to that, this is why I was so hard on the Spy Who Loved Me because it started off as this is how you do a lighter Bond, and they got it so right for quite a period of time, and I just think like less is more sometimes. Not I just think, here, really. 
it is that like you know all right you've made the point you can do a lighter bond film and you can even do a bond film with a guy who's not so good at action and you've sold me on it live and let die was pretty good and the spy you loved me was had a really good start and now you're ruining it by just going let's try all and out goofy Let's, yeah, try Let's try another Let's try I mean, the thing, so, I mean, again, I say this as a retrospective head, but the the thing where Roger Moore works with with his charm and his humour is with, like, you know, someone says something that's vaguely, you know, uh, you know, like, sort of funny or mouthy, like, um, innuendo kind of thing, and Roger Moore raises an eyebrow. That's all we need. That's all we need. And, like, and Roger, like, gets out of scrapes from some ridiculous faction... That is it. That's all we need. Don't need anything more beyond that. That's fun. That's, that's and that is fun. That's, gone. that's, can't well, be. that's all is, we need is a go. better reactor than he is an actor. In in as much as, I mean, we'll see it when we get to Octopussy, and it's a really shit joke. But Magda, he's in bed with Magda, and Magda says, "I need a refill with a drink." That is a rubbish joke, but it's deliver. It's done so well with his reaction of what's she on about? Oh. You know, and it's understated, and they don't know where to stop. And I think that's my problem with Moonraker, full stop. It's a better film than its reputation, but it takes last week, wraps it up a bit even more, and just said, well, that works, so this will really work. <laughs> and, and, it, and it is very like Die Another Day, only in as much as Die Another Day at the time was by far the highest grossing Bond film, adjusted, you know, for inflation. Not, I mean, it not... it could be the fact that they know they're going to end up going into space with lasers and, and stuff like that. It could just be, let's just start ramping them up because because by the time we get to that point, it just <laughs> we're kind of working. Yeah, I, th- I think I think the the point for me though is that this film was a massive success. It's the highest grossing Bond film until you get to Goldeneye, which mm-hmm. is sixteen years later, it's and crazy, two, isn't it? two James Bonds later. And I, I can't be asked to count it, but it's something like six Bond films later. Um, this is the highest grossing. We're not just talking adjusted. We're talking in absolute terms. None of the 80s films beat this. In, and it took them until Pierce Brosnan and a real sort of uh, lack of Bond, a real sort of built-up, pent-up demand for the series to beat this. Yeah, there's a six-year gap, wasn't there? But even after that, they went and did For Your Eyes Only Next. Now, admittedly, unless they have Bond fucking fighting a meteor, <laughs> how can they top this? But the fact is, you eat, you get the impression when you watch The Spy Who Loved Me. Sorry, I keep saying, I keep naming the wrong film. Sorry, until you watch, when you watch For Your Eyes Only, apart from that very last scene with the parrot, because they just can't help themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think to some degree the pre-title you're watching a very straight Bond film and you think, you get the impression watching it that they've almost been a bit humbled. That they're like, we've really got to, this is ridiculous, we've got to pull this back. And they were the same after Die Another Day. And both Die Another Day and this film were to that date the highest grossing Bond film. So sometimes success isn't everything. You know, the producers just know we we can't take this any further in this direction. But, you know, until we get to... I was surprised it was only 41 minutes, the um, double take, because it actually felt like we'd had, you know, 70% of a really good film, whereas it was still in, like, Act 1. Yeah, I always thought the double take in Pigeon was halfway through, slap bang in, in Moonraker. Yeah, I was really surprised that it was such a short space of time, but... Oh, well. 
Oh, I. So next. Yeah, I think it's Betty that never really recovers, as we said. But yeah, moving on. <laughs> yeah, so next we go to Venice. At last. Oh no, we're in Venice. What the fuck? You're in Venice already. About? Yeah, we're in Venice already. Yeah. We stay in Venice. <laughs> we, st- we stay in Venice. in Venice. And M turns up. And yeah, well, well did he, did, did, did he break up? Did he break into um, Drax's compound where he meets all of the scientists and stuff? Yeah, he discovers all the glass vials used to contain yeah. the poison for the uh, pods of death. And we see, like, scientists go like, Oh, no, 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 dead. It's gas! Oh, death. Yeah. And he, he has a, um, a fight with... I don't know his name. It says his name's Char in the script, but then in the end credits, he's called Chang. Toshiro Suga, the basically Kato. Sugar glass destroyed in the scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most sugar glass don't ever. <laughs> and you can just see it coming. Again, even its decent action gets, like, telegraphed. Because he runs into that room to get away from him, and you just spot the amount of glass, and you go, "Wow, okay, I know what's happening here." Then yeah, that's where the budget went. <laughs> it's like there was only two things missing from that scene. There was like the the scene where they were both frankly trying to fight each other while trying to save the value of objects there, enveloped them, and they're going to break up, and the, and the lack of uh, character saying judo chop. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that. There's two things with Roger Moore apart from. Uh, firstly he always looks when he's posing with his gun he always looks like I, I joke about this on Twitter he looks like he's stroking the head of an invisible Shetland pony he's always got like a hand up at just about sort of chest height and the second thing he always does is whenever he's having a fight he does kind of you know that make those judo hands judo chop and it's just it's not very good and the thing is unfortunately a lot of the 70s um, uh, kung fu karate and that were, were popular and yeah, so really it, does, it here, just it? seems to be in all of this all of his films and even though it's only two films ago for us it re- even even then I just think didn't we cover this ages ago in The Man with the Golden Gun? I think like with the character of Ronald as well he's kind of meant to be one thing an excellent pistol marksman and also he's got you know he's quite good with his hands he's meant to be quite a good boxer and yeah. you know he can kind of hold his own in a fist fight as it were but yeah, this does turn. But to Roger Moore's be... Bond is not a boxer, is he? No, he's it's not. It's kind of like vague karate, vaguely judo, sort of done badly. Judo, chop. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I love about the Austin Powers movies. It's all just literally judo chop. Makes me laugh. <laughs> but so anyway, um... like the thing is, though, like it's not Roger's style to get like get really physical. Like no, it's not. You know, you wouldn't find that was more Sean. Roger do like uh, the fight scene in From Russia of Love you know it's not his thing you know his thing would be like kind of like the more sort of Steven Seagal style of fighting where I'm just going to sort of wave my hands out a little bit and then and, the, and everyone just falls down you know it's that kind of <laughs> it's that kind of thing you know he's wafting you know. vaguely <laughs> yes <laughs> that tickles me every single time what know, Steven Seagal or just <laughs> <laughs> the wafting <laughs> The wafting. <laughs> yeah, I, he, I mean, he, he doesn't fight particularly well. But the fact no. is, at this point, and the other thing is, the fight seems to finish on the set of Hugo. Oh yeah, that's you know, it's by the by the stained glass, the big stained glass windows, and the yeah, piano that's played again, Sam. It's it's okay, you know. At this point, I still don't have a major problem. It's all right, but it's already starting to run out of steam a little bit. Just a little bit. So, mm. anyway, on to the next scene. We see. Uh... So, we see Drax basically ring up his uh, <laughs> henchman hotline. 
<laughs> uh, which is probably one of my greatest. I must, I must give a, a shout out here to. Uh, it's not called this anymore. It was actually the Digital Gonzo podcast, but they're now called School of Movies. They've been through like a diff- couple of different things, and when they talked about Bond about four years ago, they they actually did a whole sort of. It wasn't a deliberate sketch. They were just talking, and they actually said about the henchman hotline, and one of them sort of played the guy answering the phone on the henchman hotline and it was really funny so i just must mention it because i'm sure we'll cover some of the same ground but this is bizarre i mean he he's turned up with two different masters in one film like who's he ta- who's Drax talking to on the phone it's literally like well, first of all i thought it might be specter and it's some kind of you know specter is, is looking over it somehow but he's like oh no well if you can get him you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean to they send out cvs this is pre-internet <laughs> it's like yes, hello. I need I need an evil henchman to do my bidding, please. Seven oh, certainly. Steel doors. Um, <laughs> well, if you can get him, well then. <laughs> well, well, maybe he's not available. She's still working with uh, that um, Zorin fellow. Uh, but um, but we've we've got we've got to Jaws. He's he's available. He's, he's free. He, he, yeah, because he's. <laughs> Oh, he's faced Bond before. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. Even though he's not actually killed him. <coughs> it's so. just it, it, it's attempting to um, explain something that you should never try to explain. It's a bit like Star Trek Enterprise trying to explain why one set of Klingons had like bumpy heads and the rest didn't. That's a bit it's weird. Just, it's kind of just let let it, let it go. If you want him to turn up, fine. We, you know, this is a close knit community. They've got similar contacts. Fair enough. The thing is, though, like if if they had just had it, um, like as if he was just another henchman in 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 his thing, you would have bought it because it would have thought, okay, well, he survived uh, spy, so he would have like been jobless. He survived falling out of plane. So, yeah, so he would have like ended up being picked up, you know, as probably hitmen or you know or in that, or that type of fellas would would do, and would have fell into another similar person's position you know as a yeah as, as a you know, henchman and you wouldn't don't need that explained it's just, it's just a bit odd thinking that there there's like some evil henchman agency there that you <laughs> just ring up you know what i mean it's just or like even if it's not an agency the idea that like the, the criminal community is like close enough that you ring one of your mates yeah <laughs> because He's like is he well free, look, it's know? a bond film i have to have a henchman what are you going to use him for it doesn't matter i have to have a henchman <laughs> I just, it's a very bizarre scene I mean I've seen that film hundreds of times and I just I completely forgot about it as soon as it appeared I was like who is Drax on the phone to what the hell maybe, maybe, oh, that, maybe that's a question that will that would have been answered in another film maybe <laughs> but we'll just assume that it's Dial Henchman 0800 mm. <laughs> I mean yeah, I would, is I would, at this point is it the, at this point we get the second MC uh, that's a little bit, um, a little bit further on, I think. Well, that's in Venice. Well, he basically gets called out because he basically discovers, um, like, oh, hang, there's a bit, there's all this shady going on in this building, and he takes, uh, um, and is it the uh, the chief of security? Is it or is it the? Yeah, you get um, Freddie Gray, the minister. Yeah. So um, yeah, and they go like, oh, this is. And very I, as I think we mentioned last week, he is a bit of a turncoat because <gasps> he's in this film and the last film under a Labour government. Oh. And we see him in the 80s under a conservative government, and he's still the minister. He switched allegiances. Switches allegiances. Not happy about that. No. <laughs> no. Oh. Well, you know, oh. he's pally with Drax, you know. He's... Yeah. <laughs> but he's also, like... it's at this point of the film as well that we find out that um, Dr. Goodhead is also a CIA agent. So that's quite important as well. So not only is she a doctor, um, astronaut, she's also 
kind of equal to Bond in terms of the spice stakes. Yeah, that bit's a bit like, oh, what, really? Like, <laughs> <gasps> we never would have guessed. It's just a bit like, um, okay, aren't we just repeating the triple X thing again? Like, aren't we? Yeah. We are. The whole film is a, a you know, it's, it's a rehash the, of the spice. If the films were literally of equal standard, you'd put last week first because this is a rehash. Yeah, pretty much. It was written but, by the same same writer. Well, in its in, in its favour, it's uh, it's more believable actress this time round. So, yeah, I'd uh, go along with that. For years, I would have disagreed with that, but yeah. I've watched it this time. It is so clear. This is a better character. Well, not necessarily a better character, but it's certainly a better performance. Yeah, and Definitely. she's used a little bit better in the uh, in the early going. Triple uh, X does a little bit more, but become come the end, she's completely kicked aside. That's a little bit less the case here, I think. A little bit. I mean, even when she's like, you know, I suppose she has the kind of the the thing in Egypt with the car of jaws and that. But mm. even, but even like before then, she's had like two guys help beat up Bond. It's just like, oh, okay. Um, but it, yeah, in, in this, she just seemed very much like she's an active person, actually, actually doing something herself. Yeah, she has quite a physical role, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, even though, even though, like she does get on the receiving end of one of she's, she never looks out of her depth. No, no, but, that's that's good, Dave. Well done. But so that, that sums it up. What I was trying to say. Sorry. <laughs> even though, like uh, she gets on the receiving end of one of War, Roger Moore's most patronising lines to a Bond lady, Ugh. which is like, "Hang on, the fourth had occurred to me." <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say the a woman bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's I mean, I'm. Why, think, why would I get so offended? That, I'm a bloke, but I, mean, I, I, I still watch it and just go. Really? I find it offensive. It, it, it's, it's a because <laughs> bit... I, I wouldn't be surprised, <laughs> Becca, because I watch it and just go, really? Yeah, I just it's, cringe now. To it's be a bit of an odd box. It's a mixture between like, oh, I'm surprised, like a woman's a doctor, but there's also like a bit of a smile on face, like, oh, right, well, I'm actually quite pleasantly surprised. Well Great. done, you. It's a woman. But, but then and also, all... that her name is Doctor Goodhead. But then it all... just didn't. It just, <laughs> it just didn't require comment. But you got, no. you got that mixed with the, like, there's a little bit of hint of like, oh, well, I'll look forward to banging you later on. <laughs> it's that kind of weird. <laughs> I'd like it if you'd said that. <laughs> that's, that's what he was thinking. The irony of being a Bond fan is, I've just complained about sexism, but if Addy turned around and said, I look forward to shagging you later, <laughs> I'd have been cool with that. That's a more very Austin powers kind of line. Yeah. So do we shag now or shag <laughs> later? <laughs> they never consider both. <laughs> so anyway like in terms of the in terms of the movie so basically um bonds under fire from freddie gray because they go in and and discover drax's um his laboratory is actually a sham um and then yeah, they got rid of all that sort of equipment quite quickly really because they did and just, just drax <laughs> just sat there like with in a, a big massive empty room go like oh well i'm quite offended by this You've you've dis you've you can't you see I'm very busy I'm outraged by this interruption like what, what exactly <laughs> I was only driving my kitchen. <laughs> you're you're pretty much standing in a room with nothing in it. I don't know. <laughs> they have to go in with gas masks as well. <laughs> what? And to go to go into the room they have to dial. Oh, I, I don't know what it is. It's the notes from um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, it's like do 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 do. Is that <laughs> Which how is interesting, goes? I think. <laughs> another, another twist. Do, 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 or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I can't recreate it, but. No, this, this, I, we know what you mean. But this yeah. is one of the rare times there where kind of uh, Roger Moore's Bond gets uh, belittled a little bit. He kind of gets like, well, you've caused an embarrassment. How dare you, 007? He, yeah, he's cocked got, up. Yeah, uh, and he's like a bit kind of talked down to, and then the, the mystery walks off, and then 
he, a Bond turns to him and says, like, well, maybe not a complete waste, because he grabbed um, a bit of equipment, like, back some evidence, some physical evidence that there was something there. And M kind of like, so, so there was something there. Oh, right, well... three weeks leave. Yeah. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. Okay, so that's, of... that's quite good when, whenever kind of Bond, you know, um, M backs Bond up, I think. It's good, mm. he's got trust in his agents, which is really good. We like it. I mean, he's, he's, in a, he's on a beautiful... Well, it's a location, not a set. I mean, it's it's Venice, and it looks great, and it's the last time we see Bernard Lee, apart from a very brief bit at the end. And it's got the other bit to it, do as well. Yeah, it's just a lovely way to go out, and I just I've loved this M, and I'm not too emotional about it. I mean, he died nearly forty years ago, but at the same time, we're not going to get anything I like as much probably again in this role. So I'm really fond of this scene. I think I really when, when people think of them, they do tend to think, I mean, as good as um, Judy Dench was, um, and as much as I do like Ray Fiennes, I've been aching for Ray Fiennes to be involved in Bond for as, as long as I can remember. Um, but as much as I like his version of them, um, when people think of them, they generally think of Bernard Lee, and rightly so. Well, I think a lot of people think of Judy Dench these days just because she was M for a very long time. Yeah. And she was good too, I've got no complaints, it's just... I really like Bernard Lee. And no, I would agree. I've, I've said it in several episodes. We're not going to get a chance after tonight. And to be honest, a lot of it, a lot of what you'll have heard at the start of this episode will depend on what we can find on um, on uh, YouTube. But if we can find a decent Bernard Lee scene, we'll probably use it because it's the last chance we'll get. I'm yeah. tempted but... to use the uh, the henchman agency. Quite honest, but the fact is. <coughs> we are saying goodbye to a very good character tonight and one who we've seen through 11 films and 17 years. No. You know, anyway, cue, moving on. Cue sad emotional music. Cue sad music. <laughs> I was thinking about like Simon Bates's R tune then. <laughs> <laughs> Does it island discs or something like that? Um, but uh, moving on, I really hate to be heartless. But um, yeah, Bond goes to Rio. You bitch. Oh. <gasps> <laughs> I actually really like the real stuff, apart from some dodgy back protection. I, I think this is a bit random, to be honest. I mean, well, it's, it's really nice that you do a bit of globe tropping. Globe trotting. Yeah, sorry, globe trotting. I need a bit of globe tropping. <laughs> I mean, it's kind sorry. of throw away. I mean, I think you could easily take this scene out, and he does. He is basically thrown. Uh, he's got thrown another girl's shag. Basically, is actually like. Uh, this is the first time I talked earlier in this series, and I've talked a few times about finding Roger Moore a little bit sleazy in this role. This is one of the archetypal examples, because when, when he sat in a room going, well, what do you do for hours in Rio? Yeah. He's <laughs> undressing her. He's already undressing her. I'm just so uncomfortable with this. It's just, don't you ever think of anything else, you sleazy bastard. Nice. You know, we, um, we know, we know we're know, we're fans of a series that has a leading character who's fairly highly sexed. We all know that and we don't have a problem with it. But there are times in Roger Moore's run where I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sake, think of something else. No. And this is one of them. I don't like this. No, Manuela's a bit random. Um, she's kind of just put in purely to drive the... Do you mean random drive... or do you mean Randy? <laughs> no, it's, yeah, she's put in purely to drive the plot forward as it were so basically she's Manuela she's their contact in station VH what does that mean I don't know um, I couldn't work that out because normally it's like I, I don't know if it's Calgary or something it'd be station, station C, C Canada station yeah, oh you're you Canada know. yeah yeah exactly I, th- I think this came up in JBR as well and I don't as far as I know I don't think anybody figured it out so if any of our listeners know what VH very hot. is very hot probably yeah very hot in uh, I don't know 
Very you know. <laughs> Well, what is kind of smug in this scene, really? Because like, even before he's introduced the, uh, an, another new agent that Emma sent, it's it, it's kind of like he's like sort of uh, with the guy showing the room. He, he's like, "Oh, do you want? Would you like me to uh, uh, give you a tour?" It's like, "Oh no, if I get lost, I'll get a taxi," and just kind yeah. of like very smug of himself, kind That's of like wa- waltzing in. It's like, "All right, Roger, he's just." doing his job don't need to be like pricks for him i think this was a i think this is a film that at this point i would be flat out slagging off if it wasn't for the amount of money they'd thrown at it because they're in rio and i mean apart from the massive you know lapels and collar he looks pretty well and he's in a beautiful location boy don't you know it um but it's just like they've just chucked a load of money at this I mean, we do get a good sequence with the parade. Yeah, uh, I back to like, the, the junk canoe and Thunderball. Reminds you of Thunderball and stuff, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. and also it's this, it's the one scene in this film where Jaws is actually menacing. He yeah, is, he's terrifying in this scene, I must say. Yeah, there is a creepy element to him, even though he, he does get carried away like... As if he's like a clown with a bunch of other people. Yeah, he spends the most part of this film being like a um, figure of fun. But I mm. think in this scene, he's genuinely terrifying. Mm. Like well, for me big, anyway, I was like, oh, scary. Yeah, he's a big, massive <laughs> clown walking away, where he just kind of really sort of slowly... He, yeah. He, he, that, that kind of, like, uh, big, massive head, map fashion, it's kind of like... You, you don't really notice it at first, you know, you, you pick it up when you rewatch it, but you, you kind of, like, it's kind of comes more focused and he starts, like, waltzing down the mm-hmm. alleyway, and it's just like, oh, God, you know, you know Jaws is coming, so you know mm. what you're to expect, so it is quite, you know, scary. Like I thought of Majesties when I saw this, just because when we talked about Majesties, and I don't know if we claimed it was the only time, but we made a big deal of like, my God, it's a Bond film, and it feels like horror. Mm. Yes, and yeah, this is, and I'm not room. saying I'm not. I don't know or remember whether we said it was the only time, but certainly this is the only other time I can think of where it's the sort of sequence you might see in a horror film, and it's it quite, it's quite tense. It's really well done. Bond always seems to go well amongst these sort of carnival settings. He he, he did in Thunderball too. Um, Inspector too, don't forget. Yeah, and Spectre, and it's one of the best bits of Spectre as well. Um, I think it's a really good sequence. Again, at this point, we've had some really silly things that I'm not comfortable with, and Roger Moore is suddenly turned into an old ledge. But the film still hasn't really destroyed itself. It's okay. For a film that's put down there with Diamonds Are Forever, A View to a Kill, etc. At this point, it's still okay. It's still doing an okay job. Yeah, still watchable for sure. Yeah. Um, and then we get to the cable car scene, which, which is terrifying. Which is terrible and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> I, say ter- I, say, I say terrible because it's got some of the worst proje- back projection you'll ever see. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. But at the same time... They're still in a lovely location. Roger still looks the part for about the last time he ever will. And it's quite inventive. They, they do a good job with it. It's, quite, it's got one of the good lines as well. It's like, oh, because um, this is the scene where he, re- he reconnects with um, Holly Goodhead as well. Mm. And you kind of see Jaws and says, oh, you know, oh, do you know him? It's like, no, he's not socially. His name's Jaws. He kills people. And you think, not oh, in this God. film. No, <laughs> he doesn't kill anybody in this film. He saves Manuela earlier. We never see her again. It's like, what the it, well, it's, it's the most random part. Like, if you think about, like, the, this whole scene entirely, you got this, like, kind of cable car scene with Jaws. Think it's a good idea to start chasing him on another cable car. As if to say, how is that going to work? 
Uh, you got this some random bold, bold guy headed like sort of in control of the cable car. Who reminded me of the guy from last week? What was he called? Oh, um, where's, where's oh, Fekish? Fekish, yeah, yeah. Fekish, uh, yeah. No, it no, wasn't no, no. Fekish though. Was no. It? Um, oh, what's his name? We know who we mean though. Yes. The guy he swipes off the roof when he's holding yeah. off his tie. Yeah, he reminded me of him. Um, and and you end up with like the cable car crashing. Bond, Bond and Holly like sort of just, so you just jump off. Jaws falls in love at first sight. Q, Dolly, Q, yeah, with Dolly, who's like with pigtails, and Q, like the most, you know, the the in love music score, whatever it's called. It's but it's one that's used like all the time. When it's empty. Yeah, pretty much. Does anyone know what that music's and, called? For anyone who's listening, you can't get to the film or we'll look it up. We, yeah, we'll I'm have to sure. look it up. It, yeah. It's really it. It is up there with if you put space on film you put the 2001 music it's so stereotypical and just called love we, we, we don't know from from here on in we get no other explanation for why he's in love with her it's just and love again we don't expect a deep story he's a henchman but we get literally nothing and no, she doesn't well, say anything she's well, cute she, isn't she? she's kind of cute she, she helps kind of cute she helps him like like she's super take, strong. Take off the well. No, I shouldn't really obviously help much. He's jaws, but she just how, like sort of tries to help assist take like some of the rubble off him. And he's like, "Oh, are you okay?" And he's like, oh, "Oh." Basically, she's pigtails, very short, and a big cleavage. <laughs> That's kind of what she is with glasses. She's kind of like a cute nerd, sort of. <laughs> uh, she is really cute, but. And, and on holiday for, but on her own. I, I'm a little bit lost <laughs> as to what the sudden love is. And oh, we didn't think too hard about it. it. So they've been just for Jaws. I'm, I'm not actually... Well, may, well may, maybe the fact that they fell in love, the fact that neither of them speak, ever. Well, he does. <laughs> well, Jaws has well, a yeah, yeah. line at the end of the He comes door. out with a thought-provoking line later. <laughs> does he? <laughs> Shall I say it now? <laughs> he is to well, us. Well, here's to us. <laughs> Thanks, Jules. <laughs> nice to finally find out your world view and philosophy. Oh, can't he be happy? He's a henchman for you know. He's, he's been so there I don't know. And... I don't know how much of a problem I have with this. I mean, I mean, if we talk about tone again for a second, this is kind of consistent in that the film just goes goofy whenever it can. And if they want Jules to be a good guy and not die, then Jules falling in love would be what a lot of the audience would would like. But at the same time, I'm a, I'm a bit I'm confused by it. I don't yeah. know. It's it's just look. Jaws is better when he's actually being scary, intimidating, and threatening. Yeah, that's when he's more effective. Now yeah. he's a cartoon, and it just felt like within two films he's become real, like essentially something out of a horror film to something in a kids' cartoon, literally in the space of two films. And it's just yeah, he's, it, it, he's, he's turned into Mr. T, actually. Mr. T? In what <laughs> way? Well, if you think of the Mr. T cartoon, this big, in, you know, intimidating figure. And I didn't actually... realise it was a Mr. T cartoon. I'm showing my age now. I, I was a big fan of the A-Team in the 80s, but I, I don't remember no, the Mr. T cartoon. cartoon. Mind you, there's a spin-off cartoon now called the Mike Tyson Mysteries. I've never heard of that. <laughs> oh, you've got to look at that for some <laughs> learning new things. Absolutely. I mean, there's some incredible stuff out there. If you want to, uh, honestly, go look up the Mike Tyson Mysteries, I think it's called. 
sounds amazing. I must go on. It's this. basically a bit like Scooby Doo in that they seem to go <laughs> around like in like a they seem to go around in like a van solving mysteries or something. It sounds amazing. But it's Mike Tyson actually voicing it. Showing his off And he's not an actor. So you've got that kind of lisp, but kind of very flat because he's not an actor. It's really odd. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, we'll give it a go. <laughs> but anyway, we, we end on this. Jaws falls in love. And then Bond like, starts to you know, neck uh, Holly Goodhead. And then they get both beaten around the head by uh, some fake ambulance drivers. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, you know, you think about like, wow, a lot's happened in the space of five minutes. Like, <laughs> I have to say, yeah. I, I did get a little bit of a Majesty's flashback here. Because when they're lying in the ambulance, they both look like they're trying to romance him. They're they're basic. <laughs> they're basically playing the odds that this guy might be gay. Yeah. Like so we'll you know, both we'll both kind of come on to him a bit and see which he goes for. Yeah. <laughs> see which one he goes for first. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's one again. Then like yeah, there's there's a little bit Bond escapes, but like uh, with the back with one of them hanging off the back like out out the car, but Holly doesn't escape sadly. And it ends with like uh, one of them like basically s- smacked into a post. Still, he's like his body still sticking out. Uh, yeah. It's a British Airways. Yeah, I was trying to think. Take care of you. I was trying to think. Is there a joke in there somewhere? Uh, I don't know. I have sure. no idea. But the thing is, as well, they play some really weird music over that bit as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, where where did we get up to? We were in Rio. So Rio. So yeah, we've got the magnificent. Oh no. Oh yeah, because they escape. Where are we? Okay. So Bond and well, Bond escapes um, on horseback, and we get the magnificent seven score, don't we? Again, I don't know who this is aimed at. As a, just think about it for a second. Whether you like it or hate it, who is this aimed at? The director goes, let's put that on there. We're it's another random reference, isn't They'll it? Find, like... They are presuming, I think, that it would be funny. So who do they think will laugh at that? Well, it's weird. It's like, but also Roger Moore's dressed like Clint Eastwood in <laughs> Good the Bad. Yeah, <laughs> there is that too. I had to actually look up the music, even though I knew it was the. Or sorry, in hindsight, I knew it was the Magnificent Seven, but because the visual cue was so wrong, I had to look it up. That was it. it was I kind thought, of like is, in, it, um... is it the Searchers or what? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and Spy Love Me you had the. Um... Ah, the Lawrence of Arabia reference, didn't you, as well, when the, mm. the sweeping desert scene. Yeah. But um, no, this is where we get the second, or what I like to call like the second Q scene, where obviously you've got balls Q, bowlers 007, yeah. and head melting lasers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like lasers that just melt wax figures. Yeah, they go pew pew and just melt wax heads. <laughs> Again, that's reasonable foreshadowing, but... Yeah, it's all telegraphing, isn't it, pretty much? So It is, but... Uh, from this point on the film feels just so paint by numbers and I can understand that like not every Bond film is going to break new ground but at this point it's just what do we need to do oh well we need to put it in space and we need to do this and the film kind of loses it a bit from now on and not only that we get to the safari suit quite soon (laughs) safari I loved your tweet earlier safari suit in capital letters yeah well this is like the uh, the last time we hear the uh, the the 007 theme. Oh yeah, because yeah, we, yeah, the we get another tra- uh, uh, boat chase that's like too long and not that impressive. It's, I completely it's... forgot there was a boat chase in this film. I don't know how. Oh, I like this boat chase. It, it's for me, it's kind of fun. It, 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 I think, I think what I like about it, it does seem to kind of come from nowhere. It's, it felt, it felt like a little bonus thing. It's like, oh, cool, get a boat chase. <laughs> yeah, fun fact, fun fans. Um, this boat chase is meant to be down at Amazon. 
but it's actually filmed in Florida. So, yeah. That might come in handy in a pub quiz someday. I doubt it. No, it won't. <laughs> no. But yeah, I like it. It's like it's a, a special gadget um, boat, and it's got like you know machine guns and uh, mines on it, and it's just like you know one it's speed. One, one speed joke. Do it. It's a bit weird. It doesn't say, "Oh yeah. no," you know. Well, nothing in this film is incompetent. You know, you you could look at the tone. But there were bits in Diamonds where we were going, well, that bit doesn't make sense, and that bit doesn't make sense, and my God, why didn't they do a second take of this? It seemed to be a Guy Hamilton problem, and as much as Lewis Gilbert's sensibility definitely isn't mine, this is all really pretty competent stuff. Yeah, at least it's consistent with what it is. I think so, yeah, and more so than last week, and I'm not saying it's better than The Spy Who Loved Me, That's, that's a conversation for another day, but... Yeah, it is totally consistent. Um, yeah, so we get Jaws again. He turns up, surprisingly, on, on a speedboat, and then he gets does a comical, uh, Oh no, there's a cliff! No! <laughs> it's formed, isn't it? Is it Ignite oh, the goofy reaction shots come into their own here, don't they? Yeah. Really <laughs> he has do. a lot of goofy reaction shots in this film, doesn't he, Jaws? Mm. I'm surprised he didn't sort of like hit a tree and go, Dung! Dung! <laughs> <laughs> Or left standing with like a little bomb or something, and he just like <laughs> he's, just, he's left with like a face. Oh, I just got a flash. Up. I just got a flashback to a film called Cactus Jack. Listeners, go and look it up in your own time. It's basically a live action kind of Roadrunner type film with <laughs> Kirk Douglas and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's fucking dreadful. I have to go and see it. Really I have bad. to see this now. Yeah, it's from about 1978, but it's all reaction shots as like trees fall over and stuff. It's really bad. Um, but yeah, Cactus Jack. Uh, Moonraker has reminded me of one of the worst comedies I've ever seen. Oh dear, I don't know what that says but about. Having <laughs> said that, having said that, a lot of the back projections bad here. A lot of the directorial cho- choices I think are bad here. But nothing's terrible. Nothing's embarrassing. Nothing here annoys me like Diamonds did. Nothing bores me like Diamonds did. And and nothing is so batshit like Die Another Day. It's all a bit ill thought through but it's okay by the way guys I've just found oh no maybe not maybe not but never mind sorry go continue no what was that I just think is, is Captain Jack so, uh, also called the villain he did have an alternate name but I can't remember I what think it I've was. just found it on YouTube ah. uh, I'll look it up uh, well yeah hang on Cactus Jack hang on oh. well I'm going to look it up on uh IMDB and just it will tell yeah if you search Cactus Jack the villain is one of the things that come up and it is basically the attempt to do like a roadrunner stroke Wiley Coyote type thing Kirk Douglas Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah that's the fairy film so there you are yeah so okay we've got a treat for tonight hey interesting segue there <laughs> so yeah I didn't expect Cactus Jack to come up tonight admittedly <laughs> well you brought him up <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway we finally make it to Drax's Pyramid Base which is filmed in Tikal in Guatemala of all places yeah and I think it's one of the Drax, this one Drax has his best line for me where like, <laughs> where essentially well this, well this is after like uh, Bond escapes the clutches of a python <laughs> rubber uh, snake quite clearly <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know, which I always think of Dragnet when I this scene when he's oh, like yeah, so and just kind of drugs it <laughs> and climbs out. Where you see Jaws again, and, and Drax turns up and he says, "Oh, uh, Mr. Bond, you keep eluding your uh, my plans to uh, find an amusing death for you." 
I just love that line. It's just because it's so long, convoluted, and kind of meta. It's kind of... It is very meta, isn't it? I, I, guess like... if you, I guess if you didn't worry about anything making sense, and you just cut together like a Bond film of best bits, like best opening sequence, best whatever, that that line would make it. That would it's be one of the best lines yeah, in the whole series. I think so. One of the best villainous lines, definitely. Yeah, you keep alluding my plans to... Drax has really come up in my estimation. He, he used to rank so low. He was such a nothing character to me, but I think he's really good. I think he's, he delivers I, it with such deadpan as well. I, yeah, I think because he is so deadpan, he's kind of a dry, monotonous, and you kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah but obviously, he has a few, imagine, has a few lines. imagine watching that as like eight, eight or ten years old. Mm, wouldn't yeah. get it. Would you? You'd just be like, he's boring. Yeah, but, but now, now, as I say, with, with our um, retrospective heads on, you can actually see how dry and witty it is. He's yeah. Re- it's actually really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's fun and menacing. Yeah, yeah. Again, he's 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 like the film, a little bit all over the place. But no, this is it, it and this it is where works. we get his uh, monologue scheme as well. Monologue scheme. I mean, you, monologue scheme. you still you do still buy him as someone who does who believes in his aims, like creating a new like he, he was just mental and believes himself as a kind of like a god figure and wants to take well, wants to kind of like rebuild the world in his image almost you know he, he, even though he is kind of spewing off like really sort of spoofy kind of lines in a really sort of funny way yeah it's, it's he, kind of well, like, the end of the plot really because yeah. you find out he wants to kind of take this poison from from a rare orchid or something and put it into these globes of death and just shoot them onto the earth and, and you know it's so all, it just destroys all life on planet earth <gasps> it's all kind of effortless coming from him as well it just he just he doesn't seem to be kind of trying, and it, he's just sort of knocking out the park. It's just well, yeah, there you are. You know, he's, he's I think he does a really good job. Yeah, I, mean, I can't disagree. I, I do think he's one of the better villains in the series. Uh, a little bit wasted on the film for some reason. I, I tend to think if you swapped him with Stromberg, literally as is, you know, just swap them over. I, I think this film would sink without trace, and the Spy Who Loved Me would be much better. Yeah, yeah. Drax is a much more convincing <coughs> villain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this point, the film starts to kind of lose me a little bit. Not majorly. I'm not annoyed with it, but I do start to tune out a little bit. This whole getting them into space thing is kind of contrived. It's okay. I've got. Um, I tried to kind of plan out all the all the scenes, and I've got written down here all aboard Moonraker for spacebound silliness. So <laughs> I just got it a little bit. I I'd love I... if that was a line. <laughs> I just thought the, the, sort of the fact that Drax just thought it was a good idea. You know what? I'm just going to keep uh, Goodhead alive just so she can just die and get incinerated by the rocket launch. He was, <laughs> way, he was waylaid by her name. He was, was like, well, like... if I keep her alive, who knows what might happen. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah you, you know, obviously, like, he tries to kill her and Bond in, in the rocket launch they oh. escape they're they going to be assured of warmth well I've, I've watched this as I said several times in the last few weeks and on the first viewing I was really paying attention and I totally got what was happening and who was where and how they managed to get out of trouble and to space and everything else and over the last several viewings that's kind of dropped away it's quite easy to get bored during this sequence. And when I watched it tonight, they were sort of not in space and then they suddenly were. Mm, yeah, all of a sudden. Do, do you know what I mean? You kind of lose interest. Happens rather quickly. You think, oh, it, it really, really does. And it, it's not that interesting. It's all very contrived and it 
a lot of these things at the end of these films tend to be a bit contrived, but obviously they've got to get them into space somehow. It's very kind of rushed as well. I mean, a lot of it, as we said back earlier in the, in the start of the episode, Bond in space, but it's only for this last third or the last half hour, really, mm. that you actually see them in space. And you think, oh, OK, so it's quick. We've got to get them in there somehow. We've got to shoehorn it in. I mean, really, think about it. Drax doesn't need to go to space. He could just, like, OK, well, we'll just stay in this, like, air, like sort of, uh, this bunker, which which won't get affected by the gas, and we'll just release it into the into the Earth atmosphere. You know, the, he doesn't need to actually go to space. No, there's no real reason. Yeah, yeah, there, there is probably like uh, like a lot better way without having to sort of like. I mean, obviously, you would have to have like airtight rooms with plenty of oxygen, or like just like a filtering system, which or like or some sort of like immune drug that means that they're free available. They it won't affect them in some way. But he doesn't um, yeah, but need to I, go to space. No, he probably doesn't. But if he runs a company that creates space shuttles that are a step forward in this era, because they make a big thing of it can land like a conventional aircraft, which we've known for years, right the way back to precursoring our um, Star Trek series, the Enterprise, back in the 70s, um, then you could understand why, if he if he knows the technology and considers it safe then it, there is you can at least explain it as a way as well that's yeah. what he builds and it gets him completely out of like any margin of error yeah that well it's not airtight where he is or whatever yeah it's contrived to sell they've got to get it into space the one thing that does impress me when they do get to space impressed is a relative term but i saw an awful lot of space bound film right up until I'd say about the mid-90s, where uh, with bad compositing and matting and all the rest of it, this happened a lot in Star Trek. Nothing quite looked lit right and and it didn't quite look convincing. None of us have been in space. None of us know what it really looks like or feels like. But when you watch the original Star Wars, even the original cut, when the Millennium Falcon's being dragged into the Death Star, it all looks like it's there, it all looks real, and it all looks to scale. And films struggled to replicate that for years afterwards. So you had Star Wars in 1977 looking better than films did in, like, 1990. And I have to say, watching Moonraker, it looks pretty decent. Yeah, that's saying something, isn't it, when it kind of... <coughs> it is. I mean, it, it looks better than... <coughs> We're going to watch Star Trek later in the year. And the effects aren't terrible, but we're going to watch things in the Star Trek, the motion picture that I will point out at the time that are like, that doesn't look so good back in the era of Star Trek. But I have to say Moonraker does. Yeah, you have got like a nice sort of um, shining light across the earth, sort of top of the earth as things sort of like, as dead bodies and, 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 and debris just sort of float away towards it. It's kind of like, you know, it's got a nice sort of image of just thing, of things like that. I do like that. You know, do you know the shot I mean? I know the, the, I, I know gets, sh- well, the, the shot where um, the space station reveals itself slowly out of shadow. I, I remember that looks really great. Yeah, it does look really beautiful. It's actually it it, it is a really pretty film, and I, I went back to it tonight because, as I say, most space based things looked really half assed in this era, and they did for decades afterwards. I mean, honestly. Star Wars, the original cut, did not look dated, really, until you get to about the mid-90s, and now it would look really dated. 
but just things looking like plausibly like they might be in space and aren't composited in from something else really looked impressive for years and Moonraker does that really well having said that they really paid for it because Star Wars was budgeted about five and I think it ran to about eight million and we're sat here talking about a film that was 31 million well you would expect on that it might be able to match the quality given that a lot of Star Wars is based in space and this is only like 20 minutes sure you can see where the money's been spent I think so yeah but the film does lose me at this point I couldn't give a shit I couldn't care less I mean it's not bad I, I was expecting it to be so cheesy I mean when you think now you imagine imagine and the thing is on the on the poster to the film he's wearing like a tux under his spacesuit <laughs> and so you always kind of picture that in your head and it's not like that at all but it he's got a bright yellow jumpsuit on doesn't it, it? <laughs> it plays better than you have any right to expect it to no, but the, the ending is pretty much kind of like a mix of like the spy who loved me, or even you know, live twice. It's basically the raid, you know, the um, NASA up here, and it's kind of the raid on the villain's lair, really, isn't it? It is, but I did think of the uh, uh, beginning of the sort of arcade and space invaders era. Yes, that's true. Because when he when he's shooting down, we'll, we'll explain that in a minute. Maybe you'd you'd like to, Becca, but he's shooting down something at the end, and it plays very like a joystick in a video game. Yeah, that that would be the kind of point that I would make. Really, it's very much that kind of arcade era sort of starting to come through, um, where you see kind of video games influence on films and things like that. Um, yeah, it's pretty much kind of yeah, Space Invaders, as you said, Dave. Pretty much. <laughs> what is he doing then? Because he kills um, he kills Drax with the. Uh, wrist shooter thing we saw in M's M- M- office. That's a brilliant scene. I think like the the death of um, the Drax. I think is quite a scary scene because it's literally just like one on one, kind of like Bond and Drax in this tunnel. And he's like, oh, I'm very much looking forward to putting you out of my misery. Sort of thing, or, along oh, those another lines. great. I completely forgot about the line. That that's another great line. That's that another one great felt, line. That it? one felt a little bit more affected. That one did yeah. feel a little bit more. Oh, I've got. A sense it's it's of very clever, clever kind of play on words though. I think but as well. And then you kind of. Good. But it's, it's basically the same as uh, saying seeing that some harm comes to him, but, you know, but, you know. Uh, it's yeah, it, it's just semantics. I just preferred the previous lines, but yeah, the, I have to say we've we've come out of. I mean, Tom Mankiewicz has some early involvement with this. It's a similar sensibility, but the lines do flow better. Yeah, this one's a lot more clever, I think. I'd say Christopher Wood was probably known for like the um, was it Confessions of a Window Cleaner and kind of like British sex comedies. But I think these two scripts. Well, for Moonraker and for Spy, um, do you have the occasional witty line in them? No, I'd go along with that. I really would. I, I don't think uh, so much of the things that bothered me. Well, I think, I think, in a nutshell, when, when we look at Roger Moore's early era and very late short, I talked about Tom Mankiewicz a lot, and a lot of it was all the lines sounded awful, very and cheesy, they, and they were really <laughs> cheesy and jarring. Actually, the things that jar here tend to be more sight gags. You know, the double-taking pigeon and stuff. The lines are actually pretty good. Yeah, it's more kind of physical comedy and the sight gags, as it were, isn't it? They tend to be kind of the more the thing that drags it down. Yeah. Um, Apart from a woman. A woman. <laughs> but, that was just what were they thinking. <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, but, um, Bond dispatches Drax. What does he go, like, hot? No, what is it? Um, Desolated Mr. Bond. He goes, hot, broken Mr. Drax. And he uses the wrist dart and shoves him out the airlock. Um... And then also Jaws switches sides as well at this point. Oh yeah, Keanu makes a point now. And it is a, it is kind of like, Al's Drax so stupid he did not see this. 
No. Where, like, where, like, Bongo's like, so anyone who doesn't meet your ideal of a perfect specimen... Yeah, because it it is kind of uh, the Nazi final solution, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, he's like, he's he's, like, obviously looking at uh, Jaws, and Jaws looking like, huh? Even Dolly as well, even though she's, like, you know, blonde and obviously physically strong and everything, she's not... Yeah, but she's very short and bespectacled. This is it. And and it's just like it's. What about short people? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I think she's really cute, but she's not. She's not. Um, she's not not Helen Slater. <laughs> <laughs> Which means she is Helen but, but, Slater. But, but, but it's, it's, it's just odd how Drax did not a pick this up, but then not only that, he decides. I know. I'll shout at Jaws. Yeah, obey <laughs> me. <laughs> you obey me. <laughs> which like, which think? Oh, come on, Drax. You see, you see the clock on because like, well, obviously that doesn't mean you because you know I, I I need you. You're you're my loyal manservant. Or you're you're exception because you know you're my dialer henchman. Yeah, <laughs> that's the Roger Moore films generally. They're all slightly too long and they all massively run out of steam in the second half. Yeah. Uh, live and let die probably less than the rest of them but we're now in space and they've got to close down this plot and they've got to sort out the various plot threads and they haven't thought them all through very well so, yeah, okay. a massive fight and then obviously Bond and Holly save the day they managed mm. to destroy the globes and it's but all tied up neatly at the end it is but having said that if if um, if I had a character who was silent for two whole films two whole films that was over two ha- two hours you know really build up i hope a better line would have been written for him than he is to us yeah they kind of after everything's all done and dusted they share a glass of you know share a glasses of champagne and they go well here's to us and it's just like that's your is only that, line really that, how do they find a way back to earth it's a throwaway line isn't it when, when bond and, and um holly are heading back to earth they get um, they get word that the craft is stranded a hundred miles away and it should be picked up safely. Yeah. Oh, sorry, they're only a hundred miles away from Earth. It's, yeah, just, only. it's, it's just a throwaway <laughs> remark. They need to tied up at the end. I mean, I, I mean, I always think the fact that they're just like there to spend eternity mm. lost in space. I'm just imagining <laughs> when they do get to Earth. It's like when, when they get to Bond and Holly, they're shagging. And then we do and have just, one of the greatest Bond lines ever. They do, and it's fantastic, and we'll get to it. But I do wonder if when they get to Jaws and like, um, what's she called? Dolly? Yeah. Dolly, yeah. Uh, he's, he's going down on her and he's just caked in blood. Oh, oh that's not a very nice mental image. Is that, all, he's, he's is that time of the month? Um, yeah. Sorry. I sorry. mean, put it this way if it was the other way around, you just wouldn't let her anywhere near. Never mind, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have to say, Q does come out with one of the best lines in the entire series, delivered so earnestly and so well. Go on then. What is he doing? Well, what it is, is it's one of these running things, and it, it's the one thing that is better than Spy Who Loved Me. Cause when is that find, the line for you, Dave? In oh. Spy Who Loved Me, when they find him with Triple X, he says, keeping the British end up, which is an okay line. It's not that great. But in he this says one, it with a raised eyebrow. goes, Whoa, it's okay. It's, it's, just not, it's just not amazing. But in this one, he's naked in zero gravity, having sex with her. And they're going to patch it through to the White House and Buckingham Palace. So you've got the which, Queen, you've got the which President. Is, which is great, but at the same time you think, but even by the time we get to... We've had this since uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. That we've had Roger Moore's Bond patched through to someone important and he's shagging. <laughs> now, wouldn't you have like figured out by now that like... Let's just let him de-stress for a couple of days. He's going to be doing something. <laughs> He's going to be a bit busy, right? Yeah. 
But no, they cut no. to him with cameras floating around with several different angles. He flashes a fantastic smile, I have to say, as he switches off the camera. But what on earth is look. he doing? And Q isn't looking at the screen. He's looking at their position in space. And he just says, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. <laughs> but I just love the little double look, double look take. He's like, oh, oh, there's a camera, oh, the camera on. Oh, hello. He flashes oh. a cheesy grin. It's quite he does. Yeah. Oh, hello, sir. Yeah, but things that that's not where it ends. He actually ends with a really cheesy line. Take me around the world just one more time. Oh. A bad line. Oh. And then we cut to disco. Disco, disco, disco. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. And James Bond will return again in For Your Eyes. <gasps> Finally, last. this time we promise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've it's, it's good fun. I enjoyed it. Um, it's not as. It's, it's definitely kind of more. Um, oh, God, anyone can start again. It's um, more, no, more. I, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It's um, not as schizophrenic as Spy Love Me. Um, it's definitely more, more consistent. And it's a, it's a good good romp. Yeah, I feel definitely. But, like, I, I didn't mention this previously, but I, I remember watching this a few years back and. I was thinking this didn't doesn't really hold up, you know. I always thought this is kind of like the fun one, and it didn't hold up. It held up a lot more better for me this time around. It was more consistent. Okay. It was more consistent this time around. It felt a lot more like at peace with itself. It knew exactly what it was, and it worked a lot better than in some aspects, should we say? As and it spy. doesn't look cheap. I think yeah. in my head, I thought it was going to be this really cheap Star Wars knockoff albeit only for the last 15-20 minutes but the space stuff all actually looks pretty solid yeah it's a really beautifully shot film isn't it I think and some of the, the, the locations like Venice say, and Rio look absolutely stunning if I was to rank best looking Bond films it, it wouldn't be at the top but I think it, it would be in the top few top three well in the top one no well clarifies Brian Clough no I think it would be I mean ar- arbitrarily I think it's probably top, top six yeah, top, top five, five or six, six yeah. yeah. Definitely. I, th- I think it's a really, really attractive film. And, and even the effects-heavy bits are done really well, given that was fairly new technology back then. Mm, and they didn't even from. do all the motion control stuff that Star Wars did. They used a, a, a different technology and not as advanced a one either. So I, we'd sound like we're overpraising it. it. I don't think any of us think it's a great film. and It's, it's, not, it's not a goalful film as well. It's just... not like the ridiculous film that everybody... Yeah, I just don't think. But it's, it, it, sorry, it's bad. I just don't think it was as bad as we're expecting. Hence, the review no. sounds more positive. Whereas, yeah, that's like, relative. We were really hard spy... at why you love me because it's it's rated as a classic, and I don't think it is. Yeah, you can. It can be a favourite. I mean, no one's ever like Becca. Why do you like it? I mean, you can pick any Bond film if you genuinely enjoy it. Diamonds. But I, I don't think objectively it's a particularly good film. Whereas. We're looking at Moonraker. That's not objectively a good film either, but it, it's painted as though it's one of the absolute avoids. Yeah, it's really not. With Die Another Day and, for some people, Diamonds Are Forever. It's not as bad as either of them, folks. Die Another Day is awful. It's my I, worst I will movie. Say, I will say now, Diamonds Are Forever and Die Another Day are far weaker films than this. I'm sure there are I some fans know. of those films out there, so we're sorry about that. But I, I, still, I still enjoy Die Another Day, but, you know... Oh no! Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's funny. Well, fun and funny to watch. But yeah, um, yeah for me, it's the absolute idea of the series. Uh, yeah, but anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> That's our we'll get to that. We'll get there. We'll get there. Well, folks, we're going to talk recordings. We'll do it on the line for the moment because obviously, guys, uh, whenever you're hearing this, it will have been a while. Yeah. Um, we don't know when you'll have heard the ones before it because Chris is editing those as we, as we um, record this. 
Um, I will get on it as soon at, as at the point where we were, at the point where we recorded this. You've only got up to uh, the spy who loved me. No, not sorry. No, you haven't uh, got um, that. Live and let die. Yeah, right, live and let die. So we've had a bit of a delay. Um, what I think we're looking to do, and Chris can dis- disagree because he's got the busiest schedule. But I think we're going to record next weekend. I think we're going to do for your eyes only. And then there may be a break, depending on how much editing Chris has still got to do. And also I'll be appearing on the Pick a Flick podcast the following Sunday. Um, So at the point where we record this, we've got three in the bank. By next week, we'll have four in the bank. And we'll get to them where we can. Sounds about fair, doesn't it, I think? Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get there in the end. Just just it's just, we'll it's get just there in gonna the be end. a slow time for me right it now. Is, but... but what we're, but um at the point where you hear this there should be there should be for your eyes only following fairly soon after because we are gonna record that next week. I think we've all got it in our calendars. Um but um at the the, the schedule they come out at is entirely down to like how busy we are because it it Chris used to worry about them getting backed up. Them being backed up isn't the problem, actually. If they're backed up, they're backed up. But it's just, you know, don't necessarily expect them to be released anytime soon. <laughs> mm. Obviously, yeah, we all do this for a hobby and we all have day jobs. But we'll, we'll get them out as soon as we can, don't worry. We do, but we've got a little bit of time next weekend and we, 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 we ought to grab the slot while we can. So we'll, we, we'll, we'll, we will prepare and record for your eyes only next week and it'll be a nice new year's treat hopefully by the time you listen to this um that won't be far behind because we'll have recorded it fairly soon after you'll probably on to a kill by this point yeah Yeah, probably (laughs) sorry for the delay folks it's nobody's fault and no one's going to blame chris for it because he's got an obscenely busy life yes i do (laughs) Uh, you need an assistant you know, if anyone wants to actually do my college work for me, that'd be great. Uh, so, <laughs> or if you can find assistant, an assistant whose name's a play on like blowjobs or something like that, so you can feel like he's bomb. Random task. Yeah. Random task. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so guys, if people want to find you on social media, where can we find you? Uh, I'm at Cinematronics on Twitter. I'm at the Pasty Kid 1976, and I'm at at RV Movies. Um, but if you want to come and find us on social media, we are facebook.com slash expect us to talk um, on twitter we are at expect us to talk we're also on youtube so if you type in do expect us to talk and look for the red gun barrel logo and you'll see us I, and we're I also do, on I, iTunes I wonder, and Stitcher I do wonder will that we'll have to change that logo once we move on to other films we are yeah I expect we will do yes okay as I say <laughs> I'm, I'm all behind the lazy Microsoft paint or photoshopping option <laughs> Basically, just, it, just must look, look, it, it should basically look like a Bond logo that we've done something really lazy over to make it look like <laughs> all the westerns or whatever we're doing at that point. Just have like Clint Eastwood just in the middle if we could like get like. <laughs> yeah, basically, we'll figure it out nearer the time. That will have to change, obviously, but we'll always be a Bond podcast in in origin, so we'll still be like you know, you expect us to talk, we'll return with, even though that's a Bond trope. We'll still be doing that. As yeah, well. yeah, no yeah, we're still a Bond podcast, but um, we will carry on. We are over halfway through the Roger Moore era now, which means we're only about three, ep- mm, four episodes now, actually, because we've got to do Never, ne- Never Say Never Again, oh. um, <laughs> from getting to Commentaries and Charlie again. I have a question just to end on. Okay, now we're kind of halfway... Well, we are 
halfway through. Halfway through. No, we'll so be halfway is. through Bond next week. I think For Your Eyes Only is the halfway point in terms of films. Okay. Which Bond film or which episode are you most looking forward to do at this, from this point now? Die Another Day. <laughs> I'd say the same, probably. Uh, no, Die Another Day is the obvious one. So putting that one to one side, because that is obvious. A beautiful um, film. License to Kill. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that with A View to a Kill and Diana Actually, Day. GoldenEye for me, I think would be a good one as well. GoldenEye is going to be an interesting one for me, mm-hmm. and I'll be very careful with it, because I, I do like it, I do genuinely, but I, I'm quite critical of that film, so that could be an interesting episode. But ah. Diana the De- uh, sorry, License to Kill is going to be an interesting one, because I think it's going to be most like the Majesties episode, because even though Majesties is a very well-regarded film now, we still went about that film like we were trying to convince people it's great, like it wasn't commonly known. <laughs> yeah. And I think License <laughs> to Kill, certainly for myself and Chris, and it'll be interesting to get Becca's almost like first time view on it, even though she knows the film. Well, obviously, I, I, yeah, familiar. I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I, I love Tim Dalton, and, and yeah. within the series, he's very much underrated as, as fans. I just want to talk it through, and I'm looking yeah. forward to talking it through. Some of the Brosnan era, not so much. I mean, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies and stuff. I, I just find them a bit paint by numbers, but I'm very, very looking forward to all of them. Let's be honest, but particularly. Uh, I am looking forward to being done with Roger Moore for no other reason than I'm looking forward just to... Just seeing, like... <laughs> well, it, it's, like not, it's not, oh, I don't like Roger Moore, even though that might be true. It's just time for something different. Um, and the fact is, yeah, I have watched several films of his now. <laughs> um, I've never seen Moonraker four times. I'm really oh. looking forward to The Living Daylights because... Um, that's an interesting I've only, one. I've only just thought yeah, of this, yeah, actually. I'm really looking forward to The Living Daylights because you've got the whole Brosnan Dalton casting story. Mm, very interesting. And uh, that was... And least you not forget, Casino Royale. Yes, that's going to be a great one as well. I'm very much looking forward to that one. That's going to be another Majesties where we just gush over it for like two hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a terrific film, but as I say, License to Kill, I think there's a lot of people listening who either don't get that film, don't like that film, or don't know that film. Yeah, and I'd and like I to think... go through it with Becca and I'm sort of like, basically be two of us trying to convince Becca why it's great. Yeah, uh, there's that. <laughs> well, just, just to kind of set the record straight, I don't, for me personally, um, what yeah, we don't, we know, we don't. talk about it now, um, but yeah, I don't, out of the two, I, must, I prefer... Um, the Living Daylights. I don't know why. Um, it's not that I don't like License to Kill. I do love it. Yeah, for some we, reason, we, it's we, just I haven't seen it as many times we, as I have. We know it, I really is. don't know why that is, and I don't hate it. I don't it's dislike nice it. It's nice to have a fan talk you through it. It yeah. really is just to like feel... And I'm very much a fan of it, for sure, but for some reason, I don't know why. <coughs> yeah, but, sorry. Um, we, we, we know, and that's what kind of makes us like... I think that's what excites me more. It's like, mm. is what Dave said. You've got like a, a bit more of a fresh perspective on it, so you don't you don't hate it, you know, but you don't love it, so... When we get to it, it'll be interesting to see what you think. Yeah, and then special features yeah. and stuff as well. For example, like when, when we come to Goldeneye, for example, I mean, I I love it. I've got deep seated passion for that movie, and I know Dave, you're not a fan so much. So that'll be kind of I like it, on, on the flip side, as it were. I will so. pick a lot of fault. I'll warn any listeners now. I will be positive <laughs> about it, and if it was like now playing, do you recommend it? Would still be a strong recommend. I think it's sure. a, I think it's a very good film, but I think it's a, a, a troubled. It's very like The Force Awakens, actually. It, yeah, trouble production. It, it's a no, just in that it's a safety first um, reintroduction to the series. Sure. And I love the Force Awakens, but it's safety first. It's, it's, Gold, ba- it's based in New Hope, but it is. Done. And, and yeah. Gold, Golden Eyes, Golden Eyes, like a little greatest hitch pack, 
kits packaged as well. And there's bits of it that don't make sense, and I think it was edited in a hurry as well. But leading up to Goldeneye, you've got the whole interregnum of the series for six years. So that and License to Kill, you've got that whole story of why did Bond disappear, why did Dalton disappear. Uh, Living Daylights, you've got the whole casting issue around uh, more, uh, sorry, not more, uh, Brosnan and Dalton. Um, and yeah, so I, I, that whole era, era is pretty interesting. You go from A View to a Kill, which I think is hilarious, through to like Goldeneye, and you've got it's all gold. I think they will all be great episodes. And then I think the next really great one's going to be Die Another Day. I'd be surprised if we couldn't produce an episode that wasn't funny and interesting out of that film. I think the only I'm sure we could of, do something with it. So I mean, I'm looking forward to a bit of Boston. I think, I think uh, if we if there's two episodes we could actually put together, like review two films in one episode, it would probably be uh, Tomorrow Never Dies and Well, It's Not Enough because <laughs> they do kind of like yeah. you know. But um, we won't do that. Yeah, no, we we'll won't. Give, but... We'll, no, give, we won't, we'll but... give the films their due, and and the whole point is about revisiting as well. And the thing is, I don't really hate Die Another Day. But I've uh, sorry, not die another day. I do hate die another day. Uh, <laughs> Tomorrow never dies. I don't really hate that film, but Just it, it's been name checked a lot by me through this series, as I've talked about it as the paint by numbers Bond film. Well, John we, Price we, is a brilliant villain. I do love his. his I think he's dreadful. I mean, that's going to be interesting when we get there because I think he's. Ha, 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 ha. I think I think <laughs> I, 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 I would go as far as to say he's in the top bottom three in the entire series. Oh, so hammy, but I love it. Yeah, you know, and it, it's a matter of taste. You well, quite, you can't wait for You like die, Charles Gray. And, and I want <laughs> us to have differences of opinion. It's pointless if we agree on everything. Yeah, so there's, the, there's no problem boring. there. But Die Another Day is is really crap. Uh, Goldeneye is good, but not as great as some people say. And the two in the middle have lots to say about them because The World Is Not Enough was so nearly a great Bond film. It could have been amazing. Yeah, and there were just some really stupid decisions made that sum up the Brosnan era. And it'll be interesting to revisit that. But in the next few weeks, I'm looking forward to next week because uh, it's the most serious Roger Moore Bond film. Yes. Um, the, the week after that, less so, because I've always been bored by Octopussy. Uh, View to a Kill, we watch it and we commentate on it. I'm enjoying both of those. I'm looking forward to the Brosnan era, and I'm looking for uh, so the start of the Brosnan era, and I'm definitely looking forward to Dalton. So I think there's loads of good stuff to come. And Excellent. On that well, note, on that note <laughs> yes. Bond and expected to talk will return with few eyes only.